South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Once again, a very good morning. Kind of a false start there. <laughs> Better to go. But anyway, it's, uh, it's going to be another hot day. But looking down at the forecast for the next week or so, I'll believe it when and if it happens. But uh, looks like along about next Tuesday or so, we might have a little bit cooler weather moving in very temporarily but uh the most important thing along with that we might have just a little bit of rain moving in now things scares me about that as they're saying a possibility of thunderstorms and man i you know fire danger is so high right now up in the hill country it's just uh um, well and i guess all across south texas south texas it has been so dry for so long so bring on the rain but leave the lightning behind <laughs> For a while, if you can, and I know we'd all love to have a little bit of those cooler temperatures. I could go on talking, but I'd rather talk to you, and it looks like Paula and Clint and Yolanda are already lined up waiting to talk. Leaves one line open. Grab it if you like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Paula called in first, so that's where we start. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, my question is, I haven't been able to listen lately. What do you treat grubs with when it's so hot? And you well, can use nematodes. Yeah, grubs aren't really doing any damage right now. The grubs that are out there, and if you start digging around in the grass, you're probably going to find some big old grubs out there. But they are not at a feeding stage. The stage of the grub worm that does all the damage to our grass uh, they're what we call the first and second larval instars. They're tiny little grubs. Uh, Oh, the size of a pencil eraser or something like that. But I don't know about you. I haven't seen a June bug in several months, and we just we just don't see the June bugs out there when it is this hot and this dry laying eggs. So chances are, even though you may see some bigger grubs, those are not the guys chewing on your roots, and uh, we don't really worry much about grub worms when it's 105, 107 degrees. So... Um, you're right, well, it I is. Saw, a, I saw a June bug on my patio last night. <laughs> okay, well, um, the it, it takes a while for the little ones to hatch and start doing their damage. By the time that that occurs, we should be into September, um, should be back into a, a temperature phase that uh, we can put out the nematodes and uh, that still is the very best treatment for grub worms and the only one that I really recommend but um, uh, even if you're seeing grubs it will be several weeks before you would have to deal with the potential of additional grub worm damage and hopefully by that time um, we'll be able to be both receiving and putting out the the beneficial nematodes. Okay Um Last year, I lost my front yard to grubs in the drought. It so, was bad. So I just didn't want, yeah, I didn't. I'm not mowing my grass. I'm just keeping it as long as I can. Uh-huh. But um, um, when is the best time to plant grass? I just didn't want to plant and try to keep it alive in these temperatures. So well, I've heard yeah, and- October when it cools off, and then they establish their roots for next spring, and it's not as hard on. Yeah, October, November, December is a good time to do it. February, March is a good time to do it. 
but quite honestly, we've got to wait and see what the water situation is going to be before we can even think about planting grass because there's just no way around. When you first put your grass out, you're going to be watering daily to get those roots mm-hmm. started. And uh, in parts of the hill country, they have already outlawed watering grass. And even in San Antonio, they're pretty strict about only watering one day a week. And so you can't get grass, uh, you can't get grass started under those situations. So if we turn around into a period of higher moisture, if the cities are able to move uh, out of their, you know, severe drought restrictions, uh, unless you've got a, you know, several thousand gallons of rainwater stored away, which, you know, some people do, then uh, we're not going to be able to even think about planting grass until we're sure that we can water it on a daily basis because that's what it takes to get it started. Mm-hmm. After CPS just came through our neighborhood and dug through a three-foot deep trench through everybody's backyards. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, they're going to replace the grass, but... Um, when can I fertilize that? Uh, soon after they uh, can I fertilize with your organic you can, fertilizer? You, you can fertilize it before they put it down. Uh, organic okay. fertilizers do not create any water stress whatsoever, and they don't have to be watered in. So I would suggest that uh, once they have that area raked out and ready to receive grass, go ahead and put your fertilizer down, let them lay the grass on top of it, and I, if it were me, I would be out there watering it daily. And if Saws comes by and says anything about it, say, look, CPS tore up my yard. As soon as I get some roots down, I will stop watering. But I don't have any choice. I'm not going to let them, you know, plant $1,000 worth of grass and then watch it die because they probably won't come back and do it over again. So, um, and who knows, you know, the, uh, they, the upper level tier of folks at saws seem to be pretty reasonable pretty thoughtful about things the guys they've got out writing tickets i don't know i i've had other experiences with other city departments that were not pleasant but um uh if if cps does go ahead and lay the grass uh, you're going to have to get out there and probably do it by hand but you're going to have to water it daily for at least two or three weeks and then you're going to be watering it every other day for some time afterwards. Otherwise, it's going to turn brown and die. And I've seen this happen before. A couple of years ago in our neighborhood, uh, when they, you know, did some sidewalk and, and drainage work and things like that, they came back and laid pieces of grass on it. We were on in a drought, and it just folded up, turned brown, and died. So um, uh, I guess to summarize, I would, once they have the soil in place to put the grass down, go ahead and put down your fertilizer. If they do go ahead and put grass down, then plan on it just watering it daily and be prepared if somebody stops by uh, to fuss at you, be prepared to tell them why. Yeah, well, luckily it's in my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, I I wouldn't put them past using drones this day and time, but who knows, it's... uh, I don't know. It's it's a strange world out there right now. It is. Well, thank you for your help. And well, you're sure welcome. My, my is this tree? I have a huge, like, hundred and fifty year old oak, um, mm-hmm. and it's dropping leaves like it's January. Right. Um, is it just the stress? It is just the stress. It is just the stress, and, uh, and it's uh, so often. Yeah. It. Uh, 
when a when a tree starts feeling drought stress, it starts dropping the you know the reason that it's uh, having the, these stressed out feelings because a tree loses moisture through its leaves when it senses in its own way that it's not taking up enough water through its root system to support the leaves. It's a perfectly normal thing for it to drop some leaves now. Uh, having leaves turn brown and drop, normal in a drought. If they turn brown and stay on the tree, then that's a much worse indication and, uh, you know, not uh, not nearly as a, a good future for that tree. But as I was telling somebody yesterday, most of those big old majestic oaks that we're talking about, they were around back in the drought of the 50s when the drought went on for about five years and those trees made it through then, so I see no reason that at this stage at least they won't make it through the drought we're experiencing now, which we're basically into about two years of bad drought. Okay, great. Well, on to your next caller, and thank you for all your uh, help this morning. Well, I appreciate you getting up early and calling, uh, and good luck, and don't hesitate to call again if you come up with more questions. If they give you a choice on what type of grass they plant, if you and is this a sunny area that CPS dug up? Um, no, it's shade, and I replaced it probably five years ago, and I planted mm-hmm. palmetto. Yeah, um, and that's still shaded. Yeah, and, and that's I still your best bet. That. Yeah, yeah, I requested that, and they seem to be um, honoring it. So that's a good uh, thing. Yeah, I only mention yeah. it, and maybe to help other people out there. Had it been sunny, I would have told you to request Floratam, but you made exactly the right decision to go to Palmetto if it's in a shady area. So uh, keep up the good work. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. You do the same. Thank you. Uh, Next in line is Clint. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? (laughs) Hot and dry like always. It's uh, it's just sort of come to be the way it is. So what are we going to do except, uh, you know, sit there and pray that the lightning doesn't strike and the idiots don't throw a cigarette butt out onto the dry medians. But uh, it's, it's you know, it's nice to have at least a chance on the horizon. And I looked before I came in this morning. They're saying 60% chance of rain on Tuesday. So we'll see. At least uh, At least hope springs eternal, as they say. Yeah, I think that's a 60% chance of being wrong myself. <laughs> well, it's definitely a 40% chance of uh, not raining, but I'm with you, and that's several days away. And uh, their usual thing they do is, they, you know, a week or 10 days out, they start showing us all these rain chances, and by the time it gets down to the day of, those chances have dropped down to 10% instead of 60%. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, and we just need the rain so badly. I'm going to try to remain optimistic. Well, I'll still be hoping, but I tell you what, not, not a lot of faith in that's going to happen, though. Uh, as they say, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. What do you know about cotton root rot? Any good way to get rid of it, prevent it? Is it airborne? How does that move around? It um, it's more in the soil. It is uh, um, golly, it's it's probably tracked around more than anything else. Uh, there are not a lot of plants that are susceptible to it of, other than things that are in the cotton family. Now, other plants that can get it are, well, in the cotton family, we've got some of the hibiscus, we've got okra, 
We've got, uh, oh gosh, what, what else? As, as far as trees go, I occasionally see cottonroot rot on the poplar type trees and cottonwoods and things like that. But the main thing that you're likely to see cottony root rot on is going to be things like althea and hibiscus and okra is not, and, and occasionally roses, although roses usually not so much. So it's not a disease that hits a broad range of plants. What about the avocado? And that's a good question. I honestly don't know on that. I know it is a problem on apples, and uh, it's uh, one of the reasons that apples are not widely grown across the hill country. And cottony root rot will not, doesn't tolerate acidic soils, so uh, it certainly wouldn't hurt on your avocado to uh, dust a little sulfur around. I hate to do that in the heat. I'd maybe put it down and then put a little compost on top of it. But sulfur converts to some extent to sulfuric acid, which acidifies the soil pretty well. And um, that's what people, you know, actually occasionally use it on acreage if they're thinking about planting apples. But I, I, especially in the heat, I'm not going to recommend that much widespread use of it. But uh, get a little what they call seven, uh, I mean, sulfur 50, 50W, uh, what, which stands for 50% wettable. And uh, it may even say wettable sulfur on the bag. Um, I you, you certainly wouldn't go wrong dusting maybe or maybe half a cup of that around your your avocado trees. I was talking Noel, Noel down at the plant lab, and he yeah. thinks it could possibly do that. So he referred me out to A uh, and M. I guess they have a plant disease lab. So I'm going to take a sample here this upcoming week, send it to them to see what's going on, and I'll send it send it also to. Uh, the one in a, down south to see what nutrients are there or not there. And yeah, you'll never, you'll never, never go wrong with that. And if you're talking to Noe, ask him. Um, in fact, you might even send him. And, and and again, I'd call him and ask him how to how to send this to him so that it gets her in good shape. But they can not only do a good soil test to tell you what's in the soil. Uh, you send them a leaf, and the little stem of the leaf, as you know, is called a petiole. And they actually do petiole testing. They do this for a lot of big commercial growers because while the soil test tells you what's down there in the soil that the plants can take up, a petiole test tells you what they are actually taking up, what's in the plant. And in some cases, that can be really useful information. Uh, it, it certainly is on a number of different crops. So ask him if he would recommend a petiole test. It's not, not that expensive, but uh, might give you even more information. Oh, most definitely. Um, we talk. I'm going to do that too. So I got to hope there's enough leaves for both of them. Both <laughs> at both places, so. Well, you're going to do soil. You're going to, you know, go down an inch below the surface of the ground on the soil for your soil test. Uh, you're only probably going to do, you know, one petiole test. So that only takes one leaf. Okay. Yeah. We talk, Hopefully, I can figure that out. What's going on and stuff. So. Well, you keep me informed because you're one of the best. Uh, soil scientist amateur soil scientist i know so uh i'll sure look forward to hearing back from you almost definitely okay well i appreciate your time well i always enjoy talking to you you get out and have a good weekend and do that rain dance where at least you know the possibility out there on the horizon gives us gives us something to hope for but uh in any event, uh, don't get overheated, Clint. We'll talk again soon. And, uh, Don, I guess we'll move along to Yolanda. Good morning, Yolanda.
Good morning, Mr. Wooster. Well, that was my um, father. I'm Bob, but I'm glad to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <laughs> I never thought I'd get up so early to talk to you, sir. <laughs> well, I'm flattered. I'm glad you did. I'm told I wake <laughs> up with the best women in San Antonio. What can I say? <laughs> What's going on in your world? You obviously have a good sense of humor, so uh, I guess that makes it a little easier to get up so early in the morning. <laughs> it's worth it. Believe me, it is. Yes. My grass. My grass is in deep trouble. I went out to water it, and I noticed there is this, I guess, pest plant that is growing. It has strong runners uh, about the size, a little smaller than a dime, the little leaves, maybe smaller than that. And it's taking over the grass. It kills it. And if I cool it, it comes out with all the runners. How can I control it? Um, and is your grass St. Augustine or Bermuda? St. Augustine. Okay, so, and it is still green. About the only, yeah, it's just there's not much that's going to control that without being harmful to the St. Augustine. I mean, if you have areas where you just don't have any St. Augustine, you can go ahead and spray the weed with your vinegar and orange oil mix because it doesn't leave any residue in the soil. But if, you, if you're if you hitting any of your St. Augustine, it will go after that, you know, just the same way it does the weed. But anywhere that you don't have a lot of St. Augustine, and what I do when I'm spraying, I usually will hold a piece of cardboard up so that I can, you know, keep from getting it on the plants I don't want to get it on, and then I just use that little wand that's on my pump-up sprayer. And I can I can spray um, the the weeds like that, and since um, you know since we're not worrying about it spreading through the soil, it just will kill the leaves that it gets on. Then it's a good way that you can uh, spray right next to a plant you don't want to hurt. And as long as you don't actually spray the other plant, then uh, you'll kill the you'll kill the weeds without harming your grass. Okay. Yes, just. Because when it grows, it just totally kills the grass, and it's getting to be a large area, and uh, mm-hmm. I cannot bend down very much to pull it out. I try to rake, but of course I pull the grass too. So. Yeah, and you don't want to rake St. Augustine. It's uh, You can do that with Bermuda, but you don't want to do it with your St. Augustine. So, yeah, it, uh, you know, your your best bet, when we do get moisture, when we're able to go back to watering and fertilizing our St. Augustine as we normally do, uh, then it will choke it out. St. Augustine is our strongest grass. It'll choke out every weed out there when it's healthy. But uh, it is so stressed right now, I, you know, we just can't put enough water on it, and water comes out of the ground just isn't as good as rainfall. We just we desperately need some moisture falling out of the sky. But um, yeah. it's it's one of many negative consequences we have for having been in a pretty severe two-year drought. Well, I guess I'll just have to do the rain dance, too. Well, the rain dance would be much appreciated, and if it does decide to rain, you can take full credit for you and uh, tell the nature and the neighbors you will happily accept donations, you know, food, things like that, that they, they should be so appreciative that it was Yolanda's rain dance that made it rain. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's uh, you know we're just so desperate to see some 
moisture back into the soil, but uh, and and where you can, you know, that mixture of vinegar and orange oil, just a gallon of vinegar, two ounces of orange oil, a little bit of dish soap, uh, you'll see the results as far as killing the weed within 15 minutes of the time you spray it on. But now, if the the one thing about killing things with vinegar and orange oil. It works best if the material you're trying to kill is green. And that's why, even though it sounds counterintuitive, uh, uh, we always tell people, give the area a good watering before you spray that. Try to get your weeds up and growing, because that's when your vinegar is going to be most effective in killing them. And uh, if you're ever over our way or if you're ever going by a good nursery, pull up a little sample of that weed and bring it by and so we can tell exactly what it is. And then there might be other things we can talk about about how to control it. Now, I'm pretty much telling everybody that when it cools off in the fall, well, the best thing that you can do to help that yard recover is going to be a thin layer of compost, a quarter to half an inch, Way too hot to be putting uh, your bulk compost out now. But when we do, and and we know we're going to cool down. We don't know it's going to rain, but we know it's going to cool down. When that happens, um, uh, compost is going to be the very best thing you can put on your lawn, whether it's St. Augustine or Bermuda or Zoysia. That's what's going to revitalize your yard faster than anything. So just just have that in mind for uh, you know for your project for whenever it cools down. Hopefully. As we move into September, we'll start getting the occasional cool front move through, and the nighttime temperatures especially will be uh, uh, downright comfortable, and the day temperatures will at least be more moderate. Yes. Uh, what, uh, Bob, would you repeat the rate for the orange oil to vinegar? Yeah, the orange oil and vinegar, you use a gallon of strong vinegar. Uh, if you're buying it at the grocery store, get what they call the pickling vinegar, the 9%. If you're buying it from a nursery, go ahead and get the 20%. But to one gallon of vinegar, you're going to add two ounces, or two jiggers as I prefer to think of it, two ounces of orange oil, <laughs> and then, uh, oh, it's way too early in the day for a margarita, but come come 100 degree afternoon, that, that, but we won't go down that road. But uh, two ounces of orange oil, and then if you can add just a squirt of dish soap and a little squirt of molasses, uh, you'll have... a a weed killer that's as effective as those toxic products that we don't recommend and uh, totally harmless to people and pets and everything else. Just uh, don't spray it on anything. Uh, it, it On something like a little uh, hackberry seedlings and things like that, it'll burn the foliage off, but it won't really kill a woody plant. But a lot of your more tender weeds, one application is enough to totally kill the weed. There's no much left, Mr. Bob. Well, yeah. Everything seems to be really stressful and dying. You're so wonderful. I'm so glad you do this. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going back to bed. <laughs> well, lucky you. Uh, I'll try not to fall asleep here with the microphone on my head. But, Yolanda, I appreciate the call this morning and uh, hope you have a wonderful weekend. You too, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, just a couple of minutes till news time. We do have some open lines. You know the number, 210-599-5555. I would certainly look forward to talking to you right after that 6 o'clock news break. Uh, I'll repeat what I was saying last week. If you're up in the hill country, we are in, uh, you'd say, extreme, maybe even critical wildfire danger. Two most important things you're going to do are keep your gutters clean. Keep the leaves out of the gutters because as many times why houses burn is uh, firebrand lands, blows through the wind, lands in a gutter full of leaves, 
starts burning, sets the roof on fire, and there goes the house. So keep your gutters clean. Second thing is around your home, keep your grass mowed very low, as far out as you possibly can. I try to go for at least 100 feet uh, around my barns and fields and things like that because the taller your grass is, the higher the flames will be. If your grass is 2 inches tall, your flames might be 6 inches, which are controllable. You let that grass get up knee-high, the flames are going to be over your head. So uh, shred it. Uh, mow it, whatever you call it, depending on the machine you're using. Do keep the grass around your buildings, around your homes, mowed down as low as you possibly can. If there's any way you can actually create an area of bare dirt around your foundation, uh, um, all the better. It's, uh, and again, you know, anticipate the worst, prepare, or prepare for the worst, and hope for the best, but, uh, uh, it's as dry as I've seen the Hill Country in a long time, and, uh, we've got the best Firemen and firewomen uh, in the world up in our volunteer fire departments and our permanently staffed uh, fire departments. And they are the reason we haven't had a fire like Maui or like uh, California, like Bastrop Fire a few years ago. The fires we've had, they've jumped on them and gotten them out before they got out of hand. So uh, you can do everything you possibly can to support those guys and gals, uh, especially with their volunteer fire departments that really do need the help. Anyway, that's got the show off to a good start. We've got another three hours to go. And uh, I look forward to visiting with you about everything gardening here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Good morning again. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a good Saturday. I mean, every Saturday is a good Saturday. And uh, we're going to put up with some heat. Just plan on getting out and getting that work done out in the yard before the heat really sets in. And uh, then you can probably plan uh, your fall garden. You can <laughs> get out those seed catalogs and just sit there and make plans for all the things we're all going to do once we get a little bit more rain again. Uh, looks like we're going to talk to Ron and Philip and Kim. Ron is up first. Good morning, Ron. Are you with us, Ron? Yes, good morning. Good morning, sir. How can I help today? Well, I have um, an acreage in the hill country out near Harper. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm battling a number of weeds. I've actually spent a lot of time pulling uh, star thistle and whorehound, and before the uh, burn ban, I enjoyed burning those. <laughs> I also have... I also have Queen's Delight, and I was told that uh, some of the local birds, quail, uh, turkey, etc., like those seeds, so I'm leaving them. Mm -hmm. But I've got two really invasive ones of large volume that's on 10 acres, uh, silverleaf nightshade and horse nettle that yep. pulling doesn't work because it just breaks off the vine underground. What, what are, how do I control it? The... Best thing you can do, and do you graze the animals? Do you have any animals on this area, or is it just strictly uh, field land? Uh, no animals. Okay. Once we get back into some moisture, your native grasses will actually choke out whorehound. They will actually choke out, and it takes a while, the nightshade, um, and even the thistles. The thistles seem to be... Uh, I guess it won't really even say seasonal. I don't know exactly what triggers them because one year we'll have a bumper crop. The next year we see hardly any. And apparently dry years are really what they prefer. But 
on that much acreage, there's just there's not a practical way. There's not much out there that's going to kill the the things you want to get rid of. Whorehound's a tough plant, and the nightshade is probably the the worst one out there. And uh, even even the toxic products we don't recommend don't do a real good job against it. Plus, last year, or uh, I guess it was last year when we had not a lot of moisture, but we had some moisture at the wrong time, made a lot of seed, and there's more nightshade than I think I've ever seen out there. But uh, I would I would shred it regularly at this point, try to keep it from blooming, try to keep it from making more seed, and... Then once we do get back into a period of moisture, just do everything you can to support your native grasses. You may get with Douglas King or one of the good seed companies. They make a hill country blend, which would work really well up around Harper. And uh, um, I've done this, and I've had a couple of pastures where I used to grow Sudan to feed cattle. And, of course, that's an annual grass. And, man, the weeds just almost took over when I didn't have time to grow hay anymore and just started buying it. Uh, I had horrible weed patches, but going in with a few native seeds and just managing a little bit bigger to be a little bit better to be sure it didn't get overgrazed. I have, uh, other than the thistles this year, everybody has thistles this year. I have virtually none of the whorehound and none of the, uh, uh, night say shade in those areas so in this case really a good offense is going to be the best defense against them because it don't don't even be tempted by some of these uh so-called selective herbicides because they're quite toxic quite carcinogenic and on things like that they just don't do the job uh on in your yard i would be telling you put down about a half inch of compost come october or november or so and that seems to really that stops i've found it stops sticker burrs completely and uh, does a pretty good job on some other things, but 10 acres is just not practical to do. Yeah, and this, this nightshade, it's really invasive. I mean, the oh, yeah. runners are going everywhere. Right, and uh, it it does tend to come back, and it makes those kind of uh, golden-colored seed pods, and that's what you would like to. I mean, it's it's bad enough dealing with what's there, but the last thing you need is uh, about 10 more seeds per square foot coming down, and uh, nightshade in my pastures is trying real hard to go to seed, and I'm spending a lot of time on a mower trying to keep that from happening. So um, if uh, if you can do that, uh, until we get some moisture in the ground, there's just not really a lot of other options. Uh, like you say, if we got back into moisture, a control burn is a great thing to do. But, boy, anybody lighting a match in the hill country is... Uh, doesn't have their head screwed on tight right now. <laughs> I appreciate the help, and uh, you, you've been wonderful over the years. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure, and you're up in a beautiful part of the hill country. So uh, uh, just do that rain dance, and sooner or later it, it will come true. But, uh, um, golly, I don't know how much how much water's in the river up there. Is there any water at all? No, no. We're, you know, we're at the headwaters of the Pedinalis, and there's nothing. Right. It's totally dry. Yeah, the Guadalupe's, there's no flow. There are a few little pools here and there. But uh, last time I went to Fredericksburg driving across uh, Pedernales, it looked pretty sad. And uh, there have been, there have been a few more rains up in that area, but not what we need. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Maybe next weekend we can talk about some moisture. That would be wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome, Ron. Thank you. Uh, Next in line is Philip. Good morning, Philip. 
Good morning, sir. How are you today? Oh, I'm off to a good start. It's the it's the nicest time of day, and uh, I'm doing something I really enjoy, which is visiting people like you guys. Well, thank you, thank you, sir. Well, I have a question. Um, I have um, uh, a problem with an armadillo who is designing a golf course in my backyard. So <laughs> uh-huh. I'm trying to find out what 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 is, I mean. He's obviously digging for food, but should I be uh, putting down some type of um, herb pesticide or something? To keep there's not much. Yeah, there's there's not much that. Uh, you know, will work against an armadillo. The best repellent, and if they're very small areas that you're trying to keep uh, he or she out of, uh, blood meal is a good repellent. But uh, for me, armadillos just catch and relocate. They're not the brightest animals. In fact, they're probably pretty low on the animal IQ scale. And they, they're they not all that difficult to trap, especially you know, when they're uh, right now so desperate for water and things like that. And uh, what you do is just a good, strong live trap. Set it. There's not a bait you can use for them. But take a couple of two-by-sixes, turn them up on edge, and make a funnel going down into the front of the trap. Uh, If you have, uh, like in my case, I have a very low rock wall with wire on top of it, and uh, I can see where the armadillos, you know, walk right along that wall, and that way I only have to put up, you know, one board, and I just have to, I've got a 50-50 chance of setting the trap the right direction, although I have been known to set two traps, one facing each way, and usually within two or three evenings you will get that armadillo to walk into the trap, and then you can find a suitable area that you can relocate them 10 miles away or so, but... Uh, uh, unfortunately, there's not really a bait for them. Uh, they're rooting around looking for earthworms, which is one of the principal things they eat. If they find grubs, they'll eat them. Uh, basically, any kind of insect, which is, is what they're digging for. And they can sure do a number on plowing the area up. And uh, with this as dry as it is right now, everything they dig up is probably going to die. So uh, armadillos are not your friend this time of year. Yeah, I see that. Okay. Well, thank you for your help, sir. You are certainly welcome. And uh, do, you know, do handle them carefully. Armadillos are one thing that can carry animal leprosy. Um, If you, hopefully you don't have to handle them at all. What I do is uh, I've got a metal, small metal garbage can, not the real big one. And uh, when I get one in the trap, I just, you know, lift the lid, sort of shake the armadillo down into the metal can, slam the lid on, and... uh, be sure that it's secure, and then head, in my case, <laughs> to a to a wildlife management area not too far away from me where uh, they hopefully have a, a little bit better life. But uh, uh, that's, that's going to be your only, other than shooting them, that's the only way you're really going to solve the problem with them digging up your area. All right. Again, thank you, and you have a good day. You do the same, sir. Thank you so much. Goodbye. All right, Kim, hang on just a second. Let's get a uh, quick break in here so that uh, we don't get behind. Looks like I get to talk to you about Phoenix Nursery and Garden Center, and that's always a pleasure. I've got actually gotten to see uh, Mark and Mike both a couple of times recently at uh, some nursery trade shows, and 
just some of the nicest people and some most competent, knowledgeable nurserymen I've ever known. Of course, I knew their granddad briefly toward the end of his life, the man who actually established Phoenix Nursery about 90 years ago. But Phoenix is, uh, they're really wanting to reduce their inventory right now, so they decided to extend the sale that they started last week. Turned out to be a very popular thing, and they're going to go ahead and extend it on into September, and that sale involves 30% off on the price of fig trees, bananas, bougainvilleas, and tropical hibiscus, 20% off on plumerias. And Phoenix is well-stocked on those top-quality uh, plumerias from uh, Jungle Jack. So got a lot of pretty things to uh, look at and really good prices on them. Uh, they're also going to have a, uh, it'll be next Saturday morning, they're going to have a lawn recovery seminar. I believe it's 1030 uh, on the 26th. They're at the nursery and, of course, absolutely free of charge. And if uh, hopefully, maybe we get some moisture this next week. But anyway, they're going to put that on for your benefit to learn what they would recommend this best thing to help your yard recover as we get back into a more appropriate weather. While you're over at Phoenix, of course, check out not only the wonderful plants and uh, crepe myrtles, but also the Ego Lithium-Ion Battery-Powered Lawn Equipment, Outdoor Equipment as they call it. Check out the Traeger pellet grills and all the accessories. Just, just a lot of reasons to go to Phoenix, especially with this big sale going on. Uh, you can save a lot of money on some very good plants. Over on Home Green Road, right where they've been for about 90 years, check them out online at Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening. Do have some open phone lines, so grab a line. You know the number, 210-599-5555. And next in line is Kim. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a question. I have an anthurium someone gave me probably two or three years ago, and it's doing well, but it's getting very root-bound. I'm thinking maybe it's... The roots are growing out of the bottom of the pot. It's time to repot it. But I didn't know what to, what kind of medium, because it doesn't look like an orchid as far as what it's <laughs> planted in. And I right. have some of your orchid mix, but I, I don't know what to do with it. I would use any potting medium that drains really well. Believe it or not, for an anthurium, uh, Probably a cactus and succulent mix would be good. Maybe add a little bit of extra compost to it. Um, is this one of the anthuriums with beautiful flowers or one that has unusual leaves? Normally, normally the two don't go together. We have the ones that have those gorgeous waxy flowers that last for weeks and weeks. And then we have a couple of them that have just some incredible variegation in the leaves. So which, which kind do you have? It has the flowers. Okay. Well, first of all, I will tell you that um, it doesn't hurt plants to be root-bound, and having a few roots growing out at the bottom of the pot doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be repotted. I tell people there are really only two times that I recommend repotting house plants. Number one, if they've gotten so top-heavy that you can't keep them upright, and number two, if they're drying out so quickly that it's hard to keep them watered, because the more root-bound the plant becomes, the uh, more moisture it's going to use, the faster that pot's going to dry out. So unless you've got one of those problems, I wouldn't be 
rushing to repot because the plant is obviously very happy with the care you're giving it. Not everybody can keep an anthurium alive and healthy for two or three years, so uh, you can give yourself (laughs) (laughs) well, give yourself a gold star. And uh, but when it gets to the point that you are, like I say, when it comes to where you're having to water twice a day, yeah, put it into a slightly bigger pot. And of course, we never go with a little plant in a great big pot. That keeps the soil from drying evenly and leads to many problems. So what what size pot is it in now? I guess it's like a, mm, it's probably like a five inch pot, but it's about, you know, four and a half inches deep. Okay. Um, You never go bigger than an eight inch pot. Seven inch pot's a little hard to find, but I typically recommend moving things up between one and two inches at a time. So when it gets to the point that you just can't keep it watered, uh, about an 8-inch. And if you want to go back with a shallow pot, you'll ask for what they call an azalea pot. Uh, if you're doing a clay pot, if you're doing a plastic pot, you just have to kind of look at what you're getting. They actually, one of the things that I like growing things in um, where you want a shallower pot is just get an 8-inch hanging basket and just don't put the wires on it. But it's a nice bowl shape and... Uh, uh, if you were to move, uh, if you were to move your amaryllis, I'm sorry, your anthurium into that size pot, you'd probably be set for the next uh, eight to ten years. But if it's doing well now, don't don't mess with it until you really feel like it's going to have to go to a bigger pot because you just can't keep it watered. No, it, I only water it once a week, so um, it's um, yeah, that's not the problem. I just thought it seemed very, very maybe overly root down, and I. I'm not sure that the soil is the best soil that it's in. I don't know what it's in, but... Well, whatever it is, it's apparently doing well for you, so I just always hate to mess with success. Now, um, I find I really like Medina's new liquid fish blend fertilizer. I alternate that with has to grow plant uh, on my orchids, which is a principal thing that I have time to grow, but, man, it's given me growth in flowers like... Uh, you know, like I've never seen before. So uh, if, you, if you're if you looking, if you're unsure what to fertilize with, that's what I use on tropical plants. Just I'll use, uh, and I, I fertilize about every two weeks. Uh, okay, I'll do I was going to ask that next. But I have the Medina, the, the um, fish blend. I yeah. like it a lot. Yeah, I do too. But I just alternate it back and forth with the Hestero plant. Be sure that, you know, you moisten the soil first and then do your fertilizing. But... Uh, um, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to grow anthuriums. You obviously got a good plant, and you've got it in a place that it likes. So whatever you're doing, just keep on doing it. Okay, great. Thank you. You are certainly welcome. It's good to hear from you. And next in line is uh, going to be, let's see here, it's going to be Alonzo next. Good morning, Alonzo. Uh, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, I have uh, several questions for you. Uh, first one is, what is the is the right time to plant Pride of Barbosa? Is, I think that's the name of it. Pride of Barbados. Um, Barbados. I guess they, okay, yeah. yeah, I guess they probably found those seeds on the island of Barbados. Um, you want to plant it at any time that it has a chance to get well established before cold weather. Um, I live outside of Bernie, where we're obviously even colder than San Antonio. 
even in the two very severe winters, uh, my pride of Barbados froze down and then came right back out the next spring. So um, you would want to plant it at such time that it has a chance to get established before we're likely to have cold weather. That could be any time from, oh, probably April after it warms up in the spring up until about now. Um, I, I, you know, I just don't have a, a, a clue as to what our crazy weather is going to do. But if you're going to plant it this summer, I would do it in the next couple of weeks. You just want it to be a, have a chance to get a good root system down before we do have freezing weather because it's going to freeze back. It's going to drop its leaves. It's probably going to freeze all the way to the ground, but uh, it should come back out next spring. Now, if you want to plant it from seed and they grow easily from seed, uh, you would start your seeds, you keep your plants inside for the winter, and plant those seedlings out next spring because they're not going to have time to get any size on them this fall. So uh, if you've got the seed, go ahead and start them, but don't put them in the ground yet. Uh, if you're visiting a good nursery and finding nice plants, uh, plant them as soon as you can. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm doing them from, uh, I'm going to plant them from seeds, so uh, I'll do that. Uh, should I just put them in, like, in a small pot and let them uh, get established and then uh, transplant them to a uh, to the ground uh, after the winter. You can do that. I'd probably start them in a four inch pot. I'd probably put like two seeds per pot. Um, and and the one other thing about uh, Prado Arvados, the seeds are very very hard, as you've probably noticed. If you can scratch mm-hmm. them lightly, fingernail file, little triangular file, um, just anything. You're not trying to saw a hole in the seed, but you want to kind of abrade that waxy coating. Then soak them in a little garret juice. Maybe add a little bit of seaweed to garret juice. Soak them for an hour or two before you plant. That will increase uh, the the speed with which they germinate. Eventually, it's kind of like mountain laurel. Sooner or later, they germinate. But the ones just fall on the ground, it might be 10 years before that seed coat wears down to where it can absorb moisture and grow. Uh, if you will, we call it scarifying. If you will scratch yours lightly, soak them and plant them, you'll have a much higher percentage of germination Uh, again i would start them out in four inch pots if they start getting too big before you have a chance to or have the weather right to put them in the ground you can move them up to a gallon container but uh you you know you you should be very successful with it and uh, if you'd rather plant them in a pot that you can keep them in all winter for sure just go with a one gallon size container and put about four or five seeds uh, in the pot and uh, at least a number of them will grow and I wouldn't go out and buy pots. Any good nursery, I think, probably has a stack of used pots that they would happily give yeah. you. We, uh, we, we would have to. We have to wash pots if we want to recycle them, and we just flat don't have the water to do that. So we give them away. Every good nursery I know gives away empty pots, and uh, uh, those smaller ones, especially, most folks are going to have a pretty good supply of them to give you. Okay, and so and when you say scratch them, Bob, you mean? Uh, is that all the way around the seat or just on one side or just just on one just on one side Um, imagine that you had something that was coated with wax and you wanted to get whatever was coated with wax you wanted to get it wet uh and that's what you're doing you're just kind of scratching that uh that very moisture resistant surface mother nature does this for the plants so that they can survive you know a long drought without dehydrating and dying and so you're just, uh, in effect, saying, hey, I don't have three or four years to wait. 
Uh, I'm going to make you think that the drought is over, the rains have returned, and so you're just scratching that surface lightly enough that that seed can absorb some moisture, which I guess is not really the right term, but we could say it activates the seed and gets it into the active process of germination. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Okay, next question would be, my uh, crepe myrtles aren't blooming. They were, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I've watered them. I've... uh, uh, fertilize them, you know, and I've done everything that you have taught me to do as far as putting, you know, having the uh, the root flare, uh, sure, you know, sure. above the ground. I mean, well, you, they've been in the ground for maybe two years, and yeah. uh, they bloomed last year, and they were mm-hmm. blooming during the spring, and I've been watering them and fertilizing them, but they're still, you know, have yet well, to bloom. Like you, you need, yeah, you need to turn down the thermostat. You need to have the afternoons at about 95 degrees instead of 105. So <laughs> if you can do that, yeah. uh, you have a lot of people and a lot of great myrtles. Uh, we, we were talking, my uh, partner and I were talking as we were driving to lunch the other day about how the crepe myrtles that were so gorgeous six weeks ago just have almost no yeah. flowers whatsoever on them. And uh, it's just the heat. It's that old thing we talk about called the compensation point, which is how much energy it takes a plant just to stay alive, and then anything that's left over, it can put into growing and flowering. And right now the compensation point is so high that plants are struggling just to stay alive. They just don't have the energy left over to flower and do the other things we'd like them to do. So if we get rain, if we knock about 10 degrees off the daytime highs, still have a chance to get some good flowers this fall. Um, if not, when a crepe myrtle does go through a period like this that it just doesn't bloom much in the summer, uh, then typically the next year it's just super abundant in its blooms. But it's all weather. It's not anything you're failing to do. It's just uh, uh, the weather's not real conducive, <laughs> shall we say, to okay. getting good blooms out of your plants. Okay. And uh, I have two more questions, Bob. Okay. And they both have to do with one's with watermelon, and the other one's with cantaloupe. So okay, <clears throat> when do I when do I pick my watermelons? You know, I have like three watermelons in my garden, and not sure if I should pick them right now. Don't want to pick them too early or too late. Don't want them to you know go bad. Yeah. Um. The 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 best way to judge is right where the stem attaches to the watermelon. Watch that point carefully, and when that stem starts to crack, that's going to be your key that the watermelon is getting close to being ready to pick. Um, I think it's good to put something underneath your melons, whether it's just a, a board or a rock or something like that, just to raise them up off the ground so you don't have as much of a problem with pill bugs and you don't have a problem with them rotting where they touch the ground. But uh, they'll be ready, they'll be ripe enough to pick, as that stem where it joins the melon, as it starts to crack, that's telling you the melon's getting pretty ripe. Okay, okay, sounds good. Uh, also, with my cantaloupes, you know, we we produce like maybe three cantaloupes, which are really good. Mm-hmm. And is it are they done producing? Because you know we watered them and now they're just like turning brown. I don't know if we're doing something wrong. Or, well, once again, it's least, just the heat turning brown. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just the heat. Make sure that you're not keeping the soil too wet. Water doesn't hurt anything, but if you keep the soil so wet that the water drives the oxygen out of the soil, that's what does your plants in. So just be sure when you water, you water very thoroughly, but then let that soil get dry about a knuckle deep before you water again. 
Um, you're, I suspect that your spring crop is about done. If you're an optimist and think that the weather's going to cool down and stay cool without getting too cold, uh, nothing wrong with putting a few more seed in. Cantaloupe's uh, seed is cheap, uh, unless you get one of the real fancy varieties. But uh, I'm, you know, I, we still have time that you might very well be able to get some uh, some fruit off of a fall fall melon. So uh, if you've got the room and got nothing to lose, plant plant some more seed. Plan on giving the little seedlings when they first come up. Plan on giving them a little bit of shade. And hopefully the weather cools down and uh, you get another good uh, good growth and a few more cantaloupes this fall. <clears throat> okay, Bob. Well, thank you so much, sir. Have a, have a good weekend. You do the same. Do that rain dance now. And uh, <laughs> we'll hope next time we talk we've got some good moisture. But uh, anyway, uh, Carol, hang on. Got to get a break in here. You will be up next. Right now, it looks like I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And once again, so happy to do that. And I'm always trying to tell you all the different reasons that metal makes such a good roof. And Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, in my opinion, just does a, oh, just the far and away the best job I've seen with any, any roofing company in the area. But stop and think about, you know, danger of fire, danger of wildfire and firebrands and things like that. Any something floating through the air, a, a lighted uh, brand, whatever, uh, lands on a metal roof, you're pretty much protected. Uh, and, and metal roofs actually give you fire protection a second way as well. And uh, your fireman will tell you about this uh, in a hurry. But if for whatever reason you have an electrical short or maybe wi- squirrels have chewed on wires inside your attic, a fire gets started in your attic, uh, it doesn't burn through. That metal roof's not going to burn through. In fact, uh, one of the uh, homes, in, uh, an, an antebellum home in uh, my distant family, uh, had exactly that happen. Had a fire get started in the attic because they had a metal roof on it. Uh, the fire department was able to get there and put it out before they lost the structure. So there are many reasons to have a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on your home. Remember, too, especially with your air conditioning running almost constantly now, you're saving money because Southwest Metal Roofing Systems puts on a very energy-efficient roof. And, of course, uh, probably going to get a discount on your homeowner's insurance. Many, if not most, insurance companies will give you a discount off your homeowner's insurance when you have that good metal roof on your home. Nobody does like Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, simply the best roof in the industry. And they do new construction as well as roof replacements. So if you want to have the last roof you'll ever have to put on your home, Give them a call at 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and... uh... Almost seems too good to be true. Uh, we do have a little bit lighter commercial load with all those network commercials today. So that means able to get more phone calls in and able to spend a little bit more time on individual people. Carol and Ron are my next two callers and uh, do have a couple of open lines. So if you want to grab one, you know the number, 210-599-5555. Carol's next. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Doctor. How are you? Good morning, Doctor. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm off to a good start. I I think about as good as anybody can be when you get up at three o'clock in the morning. But uh, nice thing about radio is we always say you only have to sound awake. Uh, you don't have to look awake. There you go. Um, we live at Fair Oaks, and mm-hmm. we are on about an acre and a half. 
and Very we good. back up to a creek bed uh, that's only got water in it when it rains, of course. Um, and we've left the backyard just natural for okay. wildlife and birds and whatever. And we have several wild persimmons. Mm-hmm. I know they're native to Texas, or at least I think they are. Um, I would like to know if I need to fertilize them. Um, they are one of the toughest, uh, and we're talking the persimmon with kind of the white bark, aren't we? Yes, we are. Okay, yeah, not not a true persimmon, but it is uh, uh, it is a native plant, and it is one of the most resilient plants out there. I not only do they not really need fertilizer, I wouldn't really suggest it because they can become invasive uh, uh, almost as bad as cedar if they really get a foothold. So uh, um, I, I would tend to just leave them be. I, it's very unusual to me. They're, they're an odd plant in that uh, periodically they just drop all their leaves, and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with drought. And because you would think as dry as it's been that they would be, you know, dropping leaves, and yet they're dependably pretty much just completely evergreen. Now, if it stays dry, we may see some leaf drop, but I've kind of been surprised at how green that they have remained you know, through this superheat and through the summer months. So I don't think you really have to do anything to have them survive and do well on your property. Okay, great. Um, my next question is about shoeback. Okay. Let, let me back up. Let, let, okay. let me back up with the persimmons for just a second. As you are probably aware, there are male plants and female plants. And, of course, only the female yes. are going to have the fruit. So, don't be surprised if, you know, half of them roughly get covered with that green fruit that then turns black and then gets eaten by possums and everything else. It's uh, perfectly normal, and the ones that don't have fruit are probably the male trees, so uh, don't don't worry about that and don't think something's wrong because some of your trees haven't produced any fruit. But Okay, on to sumac. What can I tell you about flame sumac? The ones that grow along the roadside in Texas, I think they're gorgeous. I know ranchers don't particularly like them, but I have an area that I'd like to plant some and to block view from behind me. Uh-huh. And I want to know where I can find them other than going out and digging them up, which I well, know is difficult. Yeah, it's they are hard to transplant. And uh, be aware, now they are 100% deciduous. They're going to drop every leaf in the winter months. So if you're looking for privacy, there's going to be a time that they are leafless. Um but uh, you you will find some nurseries carry them uh, more in the spring than in the fall for whatever reason. But um, right. I you know I don't know if uh, Hill Country African Violets up there near you uh, is carrying them or not. But uh, uh, if you go on up toward Fredericksburg, the friendly natives, some of the nurseries up that way probably will have them. I'd call before you make the drive. But we do have a couple of native plant suppliers, and actually I looked at some of them at a big nursery trade show just this past weekend. So there are some out there. So uh, they're very hard to transplant, but uh, once you've got them, they're kind of like the persimmons. You probably, as long as weather doesn't, you know, just turn totally into a desert, 
Um, they actually can become invasive. In fact, uh, have yeah. one good friend up towards San Marcos that would happily get rid of every one of them in her yard because they've so, <laughs> become such a problem to contain. But on the positive side, they're one of the most beautiful fall foliage plants that we have in the hill country. So um, they they certainly are attractive if you have the place for them. But uh, uh, and you might collect some seed this fall. They do grow, you know, They after they bloom, they tend to get uh, seed pods pretty much all over them. And if you've got uh, especially a big area along the back portion of your lot or something, uh, you might, uh, you know, you might want to try planting some seed. I, again, Ferrokes is, uh, Ferrokes has water problems, severe water problems, as you probably oh, yeah. know. So, um yeah. If you just plant a few of them, I wouldn't be concerned. Even if they, you know, tell you no outdoor watering, uh, you can collect enough condensate off your air conditioner or you can just, you know, collect water out of your shower. And uh, that kind of water, you do anything you want to with. You don't have to pay any attention to anybody's drought rules or anything else. But uh, uh, I'm certainly not recommending a lot of landscape insulation right now because we just don't know if we're going to be able to water it. And it's a shame to throw money away on good plants and then not be able to care for them. But uh, look for look for some small sumacs at one of the good nurseries around. And uh, when you can water them, go ahead and plant them. Uh, so any time is a good time? Yeah, pretty much any time. They're quite cold hardy. And like I say, they tend to spread by underground runners. So uh, always the best time to plant any woody plant is going to be in the fall, October, November, but when you're planting okay. from a container, you can literally do it 365 days a year. Okay. What about uh, the creeping rosemary? We lost ours after having it 25 years with right. the two bad pre- winters in a row. And uh-huh. we need to replace them. We had them in flower boxes next to our mailbox. Uh-huh. Uh, can we plant them this late or shall I wait till spring? Look deep into your crystal ball now and tell me how cold <laughs> it's going to get this winter. <laughs> uh, there, there's nothing at all wrong, and rosemary is a, is a tough, hardy plant, but uh, it's a plant that does have to be watered and raised up into a mailbox planter. Um, you are going to have to, uh, you know, have to water it uh, even after it's well-established, but uh, uh, I... I wouldn't have any hesitation about planting rosemary. Just be aware that if we get uh, some severe cold, get some insulate, have some insulate on hand that you can cover it up that. with. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do, you, do the garden centers have them now? Yes, they do. Because I know early on, obviously, because of the freeze, they were very limited. You could hardly find them. Right. No, most garden centers should have them. Now, some garden centers uh, are not well stocked on plants because they say, oh, we're not going to have any customers this time of year. And I say, well, if you don't have anything to sell them, you know, you're definitely not going to have any customers. <laughs> That's but, a fact. Uh, yeah, no, the, uh, and I presume you want the prostrate rather than the upright rosemary yes. because it's, uh, but uh, you call before you go visit, but they certainly should have them in stock. They are available. Okay, my last question is about metal roofing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am wanting to put it on our home, and we have the asphalt shingles on uh-huh. it right now. Do right. you know what they'd obviously have to tear off the asphalt roofing, I assume? And right. do they, what do they have to do as an overlay then to put the metal roofing on um they 
basically, they're going to look at what condition uh, you're before they put the shingles, the old-fashioned asphalt shingles on, they either, you know, put it on a roof deck of plywood or what they call OSB, yes. stands for end-strand uh, material. They will look right. at that. If that's in bad shape, then they, uh, um, then they will probably want to replace it. Uh, I'll tell you exactly what my experience was is that they... And, and again, they were taken off an old roof that had been there at that point for probably about 80 years. And uh, right. Tommy told me, he said, now we don't absolutely have to put back uh, a plywood uh, deck on there. He said, we can just, you know, put runners down, so to speak, and, and attach the roofing to it. He said, your roof will be much more durable and it'll be much more resistant if you should get big hail. Uh, if we do have, you know, and, and I know they use more plywood than they do OSB board because it's a better product, yeah. uh, but they will take right. a look at that. I recommend that you have that underneath, um, and then, you know, they'll go from there. It's uh, uh, And as I say when I talk about them, my roof's complicated. I've got three chimneys and a balcony around three sides. I live in a, about a almost 120-year-old home, so... Uh, it was a challenge, and I think it took them all of three days to do it, and they did a beautiful job. And it's been 20 years, and I've never called them back for a single problem. Um, they don't do guttering, but I would uh, I just recommend that everybody, especially in the Hill Country, that you do make an effort to catch rainwater because that's going to be your most reliable Absolutely. source going forward. So uh, they can probably recommend somebody to you. And they will want to do the fascia. They'll want to do the overhang on the edge a little bit differently if uh, they know you're going to put um, gutters on. So uh, you're probably going to talk to Danny or else Rex when you call them. And, uh, you know, they they will work with you. They are the nicest people in the world to do business with. And uh, you've got a lot of choices. So uh, I I just recommend them so highly. And... uh, I've never had anything but praise and thanks from the people that I talked into calling Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and they most okay. definitely do work in Fair Oaks. Okay. What about structural buildup, like if you were going to put on uh, the clay roofs? I know you oh, have no. to add extra oh, structural yeah. stuff. Well, and that's because of the weight. Uh, your Your good metal actually weighs less than even the shingles do, so... Uh, unless you okay. have rotten rafters or something like that, you very definitely you you need less support rather than more. Uh, they do their roofs up to hurricane standards, though, so they'll take a look and tell you if anything needs to be done. But chances are pretty minimal they're going to need to do a whole lot to the uh, to the basic roof structure. Well, we have two chimneys, and they have been continual problems with flashing, et cetera, and so I sure. <laughs> was hoping that if we put on a metal roof and it was mm-hmm. done correctly that we wouldn't continue to have that problem. Well, and they they put the roof on my business partner's home and hers is a steep roof and uh you know chimney uh up there and neither one of us have ever called them once. Uh here at Shades of Green, we have 1 2 3 probably about 6 skylights which are kind of like a chimney. Uh, We've never had to right. call them once to come back for a problem with that. So those guys know what they're doing. Well, that's great because ours is a 912 pitch. It's very steep as well. <laughs> what about what about installing it around skylights? Is that an issue? No, because not I in have the skylights least. in my greenhouse. Yeah, our greenhouse yeah. is built into the house, and yeah. it has skylights. No, they, well, they that's what we have here at our nursery, and uh, 
um, probably even easier than chimneys. All right. Well, I appreciate the information as always. Enjoy it. Thanks so much. Well, then you tell Danny or whoever you talk to that I said hello. I will do that, sir. Thanks, Thank Carol. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, uh, Ron, you'll be next, but I really need to get a break in here. Uh, jumping from the top of your house down to your plumbing, let's talk about Connecticut and let's talk about water softeners. I know there are lots of brands out there, but they basically fall into two categories. There are the electronic water softeners, quite a few different brands, and then there's Connecticut. Connecticut uses no electricity, so you're not worried about power surges or power outages. It runs on the kinetic energy in the water. That's where that name Kinetico comes from, quite obviously. Other big difference is they don't recharge on a preset schedule. Those electronic water softeners have a little built-in computer. tells them when they should recharge the rosin, whether it needs it or not. And that wastes lots of salt, lots of water. Kineticos only recharge when they need to, but you're never going to run out of soft water because it's a twin tank system. Love my Kinetico systems, recommended very, very highly to anyone. If you're in need of a water softener, and most people in San Antonio and the Hill Country are, you need to talk to Kinetico. It's, uh, you, um, you know, go to KineticoSA.com or give them a call, 656-PURE. Best water softener in the industry, the last water softener you will ever own is a Kinetico. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Probably call for time for one call before the news break, and that would be Ron. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Uh, good morning. I have uh, one question. What, when is the time to uh, start planting ryegrass? It needs to cool off a bit. And you just need to be sure that you'll be able to water because uh, once ryegrass is up and growing, it doesn't take any more water than uh, ordinary lawn grass does, but uh, whether St. Augustine or Bermuda or anything else. But in that initial, get it germinated, get it started growing, we're talking wetting that seed down a couple of times a day. And quite obviously, unless you have rainwater catchment, uh, in which case you do anything you want with that water, you just... Thumb your nose at the water police, but until you're able to water daily, uh, I wouldn't recommend investing in the seed. Now, and the seed itself, too, it's important that you get the right ryegrass. I would not do what they call the old-fashioned Oregon rye. It simply gets too tall, too thick. It's very much a mess to try to mow. The uh, so-called perennial ryes, which really aren't perennial, uh, but they have a long green season. My favorite happens to be one called Top Flight. Uh, I'm told that it's going to be, be available to the nursery probably within the next month. But uh, wait until it cools off a little bit. Wait until you're sure you'll be able to water it, and uh, then go for it. it. It'll make a beautiful green lawn for you this winter. Okay, I just have a small small yard area, so the watering uh-huh. won't be a problem. But, so maybe wait till September? <laughs> Look deep into your crystal ball and tell me when we're going to get out of the 90s. When when we get down into the 70s to low 80s for daytime highs, when we get night temperatures in the 50s and 60s, that'll be the time you can put your rye out. All right. That sounds great. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And plan on planting 
Um, about a pound of rye for every 100 square feet. Are you overseeding other grass, or is this going to be on bare ground? Well, the grass is pretty much dead, so I'm going okay. to kind of cut it tight and deal with it. So Very good. Well, if it were if it were totally bare ground, I'd tell you plant on one pound for 50 feet, where you're overseeding, where you have some grass, count on planting uh, one pound of rye seed for every 100 square feet. Um, if you want to hang on, we can talk a little bit more after the news break, but we got to go to the news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening, and uh, by the way, we do have some open lines, so uh, um, you want to grab a line, you'll probably get right through, it's uh, 210-599-5555, and uh, love to talk to you, we've got a little bit lighter commercial load, I hope you've <laughs> enjoyed as I have, not having to lift in the same network spot over and over and over, so uh, fewer spots mean uh, more time to talk to you, so Kathy's up next, uh, you could be next after that if you dial 210-599-5555. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning to you, and it is a nice morning. I've been sitting oh, it is. for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope it, I, have, I hope the clouds I, stick around. Keep, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. It's a nice covering. Um, I always have questions, but I'll try to keep this simple for my own sake. I have uh, four very fat, appearingly fat, healthy bulbs in clay pots, amaryllis. Uh And they've been there since the fall, and they have been happily watered and fed. Now they're two feet tall in green stalks, never bloomed. Uh, They have been sitting out some sunlight, morning sun, then the sunshade, but they are hot. What do yeah. I do with these buggers now so I get flowers? Stop watering. Um, okay. <laughs> amaryllis I... come from, uh, and there, there's more than one kind of amaryllis, but the the species that our modern hybrids were bred from uh, come from a part of the world that has a wet season and a dry season. And as with many other uh, plants and bulbs, some of them flowering, some of them not, but uh, this this wet-dry cycle is a necessary thing, and when the plants move into the dry season, they pretty much drop all their leaves, their metabolism greatly reduces, but it kicks in the blooming process. They start forming what we call little bud primordia, and these things just sit there. You can't see them uh, if you... At a microscope and you slice things open, you can see the bud primordia forming inside the bud. And then when the rains return, then the first thing an amaryllis does is it sprouts up and blooms. Frequently, it will have very few leaves. Uh, it'll, it'll grow up and bloom first, and then while the blooms are starting to fade, then it starts putting on its new leaves. So what you're going to do is to force it into dormancy, and we simply do that by withholding the water. Um, if the soil gets just powder dry, then we may moisten it just lightly. Just lightly. But just uh, imagine that you were living in North Africa or somewhere like that, where they do have a distinct dry season. And <laughs> we've we've had a long dry summer, but you've been taking good care of your amaryllis. They don't know we're in a drought. But it it will take uh, this drying off period. Expect that the leaves will turn brown. 
I expect that many of the roots will die back, uh, but the bulbs are going to be just fine, and uh, we'll keep them on the dry side till probably, oh, October to November, depending on when you want to have flowers. You resume, resume the watering, you resume the good uh, care, so to speak, about 8 to 10 weeks before you would like to have blooms. So if you're wanting them in bloom for Christmas, and this means sometime um, end of October 1st of November, that's when we'll start watering and feeding again. Does that make sense? Yes. <clears throat> I, <laughs> shall I put these things, now that I will stop feeding, watering, and caring, put them in a northern exposure so they're out of direct sunlight and let them just sit there for a while? Yeah, prob- probably that would be a good thing okay. to do. Um, some people actually dig the bulbs up, and like our suppliers that uh, we buy the bulbs from, they actually harvest the bulbs, and they can store them for several weeks just in a dry state with no top and virtually no roots. I think they come out faster if you leave them in the soil because they don't lose all their roots. And your amaryllis, uh, it sounds like they're healthy and very happy, probably are making little offset bulbs to the side, and you're going to get to the point that instead of having two or three nice spikes of flowers, you could have 12 or 15 spikes of uh, amaryllis in bloom at one time, and boy, they are spectacular when they get to that point. But uh, for now, it's just the less you do, the better. Just withhold the water. Uh, like you said, move them to a place that's not quite so sunny, not quite so hot, and uh, mm-hmm. we're just putting them in the dormant phase. And when they come out of dormancy, you should get a good, strong bloom. Okay. Now, all these green stalks. Let them die off. Will they? I guess they will if I stop watering yeah. and caring. They'll just yeah. kind of droop. They'll okay. they'll just not shrivel and off. turn brown. And uh, when they become, no, I would not cut them off while they're still green because that sends a signal to the plant that, oh, hey, I better make some new leaves. I just lost the ones I had. You want them to naturally realize that they're settling into their dormant period and just let them turn brown and when they become unattractive stimp them off then and because the tissues are dry rather than green the plant doesn't respond with an effort to regrow okay i'll let them do their thing for the next two months and ignore them (laughs) it's exactly what you do these plants have produced in the past years, but they usually flower totally out of the Christmas season. Somewhere around February and March, they're just mm-hmm. spectacular. Well, and that's, so, you know, again, that's just, um, it, at some point, they were, they went dormant enough to form the bud primordia, and um, that happened, uh, you know, at an appropriate time. Uh, they... Again, the, you can make them bloom almost any time of the year, depending on when you tell them it's their dormant season. But uh, um, I think without, you know, if, if they were just outside that, uh, and I don't know if this is true of what we call the American amaryllis, which are different from the big bulbs, which are what we call the Dutch amaryllis, which is what you principally have. But the American amaryllis, uh, we leave them in the ground winter as well as drought force them into dormancy. And uh, then they come back and bloom heavily in the spring. So, uh, and typically February or March. And I don't know exactly which ones you have. Don't know exactly which species are mm-hmm. in the background. But um, they they can bloom anywhere from November through about April, depending on how you treat them. Well, I guess it has been me un- unknowingly that I did let it dry out 
at a period of time, and then they they were happy about that and bloomed in March. Isn't that what they call serendipity when something happens <laughs> that, that you didn't really plan yeah, for it yeah. to happen? So it's it's a serendipitous blooming of uh, Kathy's amaryllis, but now you'll be more in control. More aware, yes. Well, they are beautiful, and I didn't know what to do with them to make them flower again because they seem to be healthy. It's just yeah, they just put out green leaves, yep. tall. Well. As uh, as Paul Harvey would would have said, uh, now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Absolutely. Now I got to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Bob. Again. Always a pleasure. You get out and enjoy this wonderful weekend. Ah, uh, let's. <laughs> I hope you. Yes, ma'am. All right, uh, let's see, I believe the next in line is going to be David and then Richard and Diane. Good morning, David. Morning, how are you, Bob? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Well, doing pretty good, just dry like everybody else. Oh, man, waiting on that next good rain and waiting on a a break in the temperatures, but... Hey, we're in Texas. Um, we're tough people. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I'm just ready. I'm ready for the monsoons. If you want to know the truth, and 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 again, uh, my partner has uh, some of uh, the Guadalupe River bordering her ranch, and we were talking the other day about how we used to go just, you know, just go sit in the river, uh, and periodically in the summer just to cool off. And man, there's no river to sit in anymore. It's just all gravel bars and a little puddle of stagnant water here and there so uh yeah i'm ready for a very substantial rain myself well you need to bring a bucket of water but nevertheless um my peach trees plum trees whatever i've got a boatload of grasshoppers how do i get rid of them they're eating everything up i'm watering but exfoliating my my trees there is a product you can buy if you're dealing with a hobby shop. It's called Kaolin, K-A-O-L-I-N, Kaolin Clay. Um, if you're dealing with an agricultural center, it's sold under the name of Surround, S-U-R-R-O-U-N-D, Surround WP, which stands for wettable powder, uh, that you mix with water. Spray on the foliage. It's not a poison, but it's the, it interferes with the grasshopper's digestion and they will typically, anything that has the uh, kaolin sprayed on the leaves, the grasshoppers will avoid it. So that's the best we can do right now, other than, uh, you know, a shotgun or slamming your foot on top of it. Grasshoppers are tough. I'm hoping, in fact, one of the things I did at some of our trade shows, uh, I was talking to some people that produce beneficial insects and other things, telling them, Please go back to work. There's a bacterium called Nosema locustri that uh, if we put it out when the grasshoppers are young, it's a stomach poison to them. It sickens them. The big grasshoppers eat the little grasshoppers. They get sick, and uh, they're just there was absolutely none available. It was an older uh, family that was producing it, and I don't think there was any. It's, it's sold under the, either the names of Nolo or Semispore, and uh, there was not anything to be had anywhere. I'm hoping this next spring that uh, we will be able to get one or the other because they're both basically the same product. You put this out early in the year when you first start seeing the little grasshoppers, and then we are not facing the problems we are right now. But I'd like to say, unfortunately, it's uh, you didn't miss it. It just wasn't there this spring. And unfortunately, we don't really have much that kills the grasshoppers, but at least the... Uh, 
kale and clay will make them go eat your neighbor's yard instead of yours. Okay, and again, you said either surround? Yeah, either sur- surround WP or um, uh, hobby shops. It's, it's the same sort of clay that uh, potters use in throwing different kinds of pottery. So uh, many hobby yeah. shops will have it under the name of Kaolin, K-A-O-L-I-N, Kaolin Clay. Kaolin Clay, okay. Mm-hmm. And you add just enough moisture that you get it into a form that you can spray and just coat the leaves, your peaches and plums and whatever else grasshoppers are chewing on. All right, Bob. I've, I've got an army of them, and I'm the only one. Oh, man. I was I spent, you know, several hours mowing uh, for fire protection this past week, and there were just clouds of grasshoppers coming up even out of the dead dry material. So bad year for them this year, but um, um, hopefully – Next year, we will have a bait we can put out to keep them from ever getting so bad. And uh, you can protect the foliage on your plants. And it's not going to stop them 100%, but it'll, it's the best thing we've got going right now to keep them from uh, just devastating things. All right, Bob. Well, I appreciate it. I'm going to give it a whirl. You let us know how it does, David. Appreciate the call. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, next in line is... Uh, I tell you what, on second thought, let's get a break in here. Richard, you'll be next, and then it'll be Diane. But, uh, Don, I don't have a live, so run those recordings, and we'll stay on track and get back to gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Richard and Diane and Tom, and Richard is next in line. Good morning, Richard. I'm wondering, I believe I have a Texas red oak in my backyard. Uh, uh-huh. The water it's gotten is what Mother Nature has given it. Is that why it's losing leaves now? Probably so. Is it a young tree or is it a very mature tree? Um, this house has been here 12 years, and it's about 23 feet high. So Okay, so it's a young tree. Uh, that's almost certainly it. Uh, red oaks, unlike live oaks, red oaks did suffer... A little bit of damage in the cold we had last December and a good deal of damage back in 21. So uh, that probably has contributed to it. But um, losing leaves uh, on red oaks, um, and I'm seeing a lot of this right now, is just strictly drought-related. Don't start watering unless you can maintain it. The worst thing you can do is water, get the tree putting on new leaves, and then being forced to stop watering and have it uh, drop the leaves again. But uh, as long as the leaves are not turning brown and staying on the tree, if they're turning brown and falling, uh, it's just a normal response of the trees to uh, to drought. All right, uh, second question is, what's your source of meteorological forecast? Is that something we can access? Well, I serve on the groundwater district up in Kendall County, and we have a meteorologist who's not one of these clowns on radio or TV. He works for an environmental services company, a true meteorologist. And as I say about David, he's one that uh, he's paid to be right. And what he is telling us is we are into El Nino, which typically would be mean that we would have more rain and we would have a little moderate, uh, a little break in temperatures. El Nino is based on uh, the water temperature in the western Pacific, and it affects things 
Oh, the Madden-Julian Oscillation, the Western Pacific Oscillation, these are things that I've learned from David. And what our weather does depends on the interaction between these two. He says this year the water in that part of the Pacific is superheated, and the oscillations, the the winds, the wind currents and things just have not settled into a typical El Nino pattern. So if and when the ocean cools down just slightly, chances are we will get into more typical El Nino weather, which means more rain and cooling off. But he said the problem this year is just the water temperatures are excessively hot, and that's what's kept our normal weather patterns from uh, from developing when we do get into the El Nino pattern, which we are in. But uh, he said we just need a little bit of cooling in the western Pacific, and things should improve. Now, he's not going out on the limb and saying when that's going to happen or even if that's going to happen, but he says that's the reason that we are in El Nino, and yet we're still not seeing the rains and the temperature influence that we normally see. So I don't know that that helps, but uh, at least at least now we know what's going on, so to speak. Does that does that answer your question? It does. Has, has he given you his opinion on what the farmer's almanac says? <laughs> he, he's a scientist, and and I'm a scientist. I still think the farmer's almanac is unusually accurate sometimes, based on very little scientific information. So I have I have asked him what he thinks about the farmer's almanac. But uh, what what does your almanac uh, predict as far as uh, weather patterns? From what I heard is supposed to be a colder than usual winter so i, I don't know it's, I, to me it seems like it's optimistic at times i it's, it's surprisingly the old farmer's almanac is something like 75 to 80 percent accurate fortunately it's not 100 percent accurate because i don't want another cold winter we've had two out of three years and we've had that so uh uh do they say and i just haven't picked one up to read i need to do that next time and I'm in a farm and ranch store, but uh, do they make any forecast on on uh, on rain on moisture? It, it's, it's been a couple of months since I picked it up. I just popped <laughs> in. Already, Bob. Well, thanks for the information. Have a good one. Well, you do the same. It's always a pleasure visiting with you. And uh, let's see here. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk to. Uh, I believe Diane is. Let me check my. Good yeah, morning, Diane Bob. should be up next. Good morning, Diane. Hey there. Okay. I have I have several fig trees. Two of them are young. Mm-hmm. Like I took cuttings. One I I rooted on the the ground. Uh huh. You know, while it was still connected to the tree. Right. We call that layering. Then, that's right. And the other one I took a cutting because it was on somebody's tree behind a fence in an alley, and there was uh-huh. one limb uh-huh. hanging over. That one. I think it's what you call a white fig. It's a much smaller fig mm-hmm. than yeah, probably white white Kidota is probably the variety. And it's it's I had it in a pot for a year and a half or two after it got rooted, and I put it in the ground this last fall. It's tall. It's like six feet tall. It has figs on it, but the the mother tree already has had its figs. Like mm-hmm. ripen and come and go, and this one, the figs aren't, you know, they're just staying small and hard. What is it? Maturity or I'm watering regularly and fertilizing. So what makes a fig fruit produ- uh, mature? 
Well, it's a combination of warmth, a combination of moisture, and if you can keep the roots from getting superheated, and that usually means two or three, or it, it's almost impossible to put too much mulch around your fig. Uh, it's partly, it, I can't really say maturity, because maturity and size are two different things. Maturity is physiological, whereas size is physical. And this is a, the, the tissue is young. Um, I mean, obviously it came off of an older tree, but, uh, all the roots, all the uh, primordia when it comes to buds and leaves and everything, this is young tissue, and it's not surprising that it's a little bit later producing, and it's weather-related that uh, that things just aren't softening and ripening like a fig typically does. Anything you do to reduce the stress on your tree, and in your case, I think probably the only thing you need to do is either add mulch or increase the amount of mulch you you have around the tree, keep that soil cooler, keep the roots cooler, and you'll have a better chance of maturing some fruit to enjoy. Okay, that's what I needed to know because my, my main fig, it was in a pot for like 10 years before I mm-hmm. saved it, and um, it's gone crazy. I mean, it's producing figs a lot, and it always oh. has because it was mature, Mm-hmm. even though it wasn't big. So, okay, well, I mulched some, so I'll mulch some more. It's just uh, not right up against the trunk, but out over the roots, uh, it's almost, it's hard to have too much mulch. And I always look at plants and think, well, what did Mother Nature do for this plant? And as you well know, figs tend to have abundant, large leaves. Uh, if you could measure the volume and weight of the amount of leaves that accumulate underneath a fig tree as compared to underneath an elm tree, um, I think we would see that those figs like more mulch than uh, most other plants do. And that, that's what's going to keep it happiest, that and uh, a little bit of moisture. Uh, the We did have, as you probably remember, back in late May, early June, we did have pretty good rains for a brief period there, just not for very long. But some of the more established plants took advantage of those roots to start setting the fruit. The younger plants that weren't as equipped to take up the moisture make use of it a little bit later in developing their fruit crop this year. So there are a lot of different factors that played into the fact that uh, the old mature plants that have been in there a while have quite obviously outproduced uh, the, the new upstart, so to speak. And and this particular fig tree, it is very upright. It's Mm -hmm. weird. I don't know if that's normal because my other two figs are, you know, lots of low limbs. They it's more like a big bush than a tree. And this this one's very straight up and down. I mean, multiple trunks, of course, but yeah. But uh, remember that your older ones froze back. Uh, This youngster wasn't around to experience the winter of 2021. And um, I don't know how about this, you know, last year wasn't as cold as it was in 21, but it was certainly cold enough to freeze the figs back. But after figs freeze back two or three times, then you start getting a large number of uh, roots or, or sprouts rather growing out from the base. That first two or three years, they will definitely become more tree-like simply because the top hadn't frozen back. Had you gone in and lopped the top off of it during the winter, 
it would be much bushier than it is now. But um, And you can do that this winter if you'd like. But it's just kind of normal that this one hasn't experienced the kind of weather that would freeze it back and force, this, force it to put lots of growth out right at the base. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. You're always such a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate you. Well, experience is probably a better word than knowledge, but uh, let's just say I've, and I have a friend that defined an expert as a person who's killed a thousand plants, and I'm an expert many times over by that. I, I've just experienced more than uh, some folks have. So anyway, it's wonderful to hear your voice. Hope everything's good in your world, and we we'll look forward to the next time we get to see you. Okay, thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dan. Goodbye. All right, Don, let's get a break in, and we'll be back and start with Tom. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like it's going to be Tom and Chris and Faye. Tom is up first. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Not one, one real quick question. Uh, my ground is hard as a cement and dry, of course. And I want to put out some liquid molasses to stimulate the dirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this a good time to do it or no? It's a good time to do it. It's, uh, uh, you know, the molasses, uh, the sugars in the molasses are what stimulate the biological action. Uh, obviously, if the soil is more moist, the molasses will be carried further into the soil and will have a more profound effect more quickly, but it's not going to literally go away. It's not one of those things that just like ammonia that just oxidizes and uh, is gone. So, um, it you know, <laughs> I don't want to hear about you being out there putting it out when it's 107 <laughs> degrees, but uh, um, I would say hopefully... Within the next couple of weeks, our night temperatures are going to abate just a little bit, and I think it'll be fine to put it out at that point, especially if we get a little moisture. Okay, can I set out a uh, sprinkler and get that soil moist and then put the oh, that, uh, last that part? Would, yeah, that would be perfect. If you can do that, do it this afternoon. I, I thought we were talking acreage, but no, if, if this no, is no. an area that you can moisten the soil, um yeah, by all means, uh, moisten that soil, and as soon as the weather is conducive, which means don't go out there and give yourself heat stroke, then get out, spray your molasses, and the uh, soil will start getting better uh, immediately. Okay. Uh, what's the mixture on that? Approximately, what, one ounce to a gallon? Uh, about one ounce to a gallon, about two tablespoons to a gallon. Um, if you were doing big acreages, we figure about five gallons per acre. But uh, in a smaller sprayer, yeah, two tablespoons, one ounce per gallon. All righty. Well, as soon as I finish my green dance, I'll get on it. <laughs> you do it, Tom. Appreciate the call. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, Certainly. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Uh, next in line is Chris. Uh, good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I got a, I got a above ground uh, garden that I have. Yeah. And I pulled the tomatoes out because they were going down. And but I planted uh, okra, and mm-hmm. it's, they've been in the ground for almost a month now. And they grew, started up. They produced two leaves. They got about six inches tall, and then just quit growing. Are you fertilizing? Get, I'm fertilizing. I'm using the Hasbro plants, 
and Medina Plus. Okay. Yeah, the and Medina. Sunlight from the morning to mid-afternoon and after the afternoon, so they don't get any more. And how often, are, how often are you watering? Uh, that I water every two days. Okay. Uh, I think you just need the weather to cool off slightly. You're doing it right. Uh, you just picked a tough time weather-wise to get those little seedlings started. And they, you can't see it, but they're busy growing roots. I suspect that if you were to pull one of them up, you'd find that you've got a pretty good root system going. And just a little break in temperature, I think you'll find they'll put on a, a real burst of growth. Now, if you want to have any fall tomatoes, you need to you need to get those plants in as well. But your, your okra, just, it just needs a, a slight cool off. You're doing exactly the schedule I would do on watering and feeding. So we just need a little bit of a break from this 107-degree heat. What it amounts to is, and you've probably heard me say this before, but plants have what is called a compensation point. And that's how much energy it takes them just to stay alive. And anything above and beyond that they put into growth and flowering. Right now the compensation point is so high that the plants are simply, it takes everything they've got just to stay alive. There's not much left over for growth. If we get a little break in the heat, and especially if we get a little bit of rainfall, that compensation point will drop to the point that you'll you know, start seeing some good growth very quickly. Okay. Yeah, because I'm heading to y'all's place this morning to get some tomatoes. Very some, good. Uh, cherry tomatoes and stuff. So uh, We appreciate it, and we'll look forward to seeing you. All right. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, Chris. Thank you. I, yeah, let's go ahead and talk to Faye. Good morning, Faye. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Uh, loud and clear. In fact, maybe better than usual. Sounds like you're on a new phone. Well, um, yes, I, I just have several things. Uh, we're uh, very dry, of course, over here, too. And I I hear you uh, uh, giving uh, callers info about planting and uh, I'm seeds or plants. Uh, what are the things we don't want to do? What kinds of, because I'm, we're really dry, of course. Yeah. Also, but in terms of seeding, uh, well, are you okay to go ahead uh you have to you have to look at what kind of plants use the most moisture, and that's probably going to be beans. It's going to be squash. It's going to be melons. So if you're concerned about water supply and being able to water, you probably ought to put off your watering on those for a little while. Also, because of the heat, I'm not recommending planting broccoli and cauliflower. Broccoli especially, we usually plant in August, but this kind of heat, no. I'm not going to suggest setting out the coal family plants until we get a little break in temperature, but um, uh, it's right now, it's, uh, to a large degree, I'm telling people, unless you can provide some shade cloth, basically just prepare for when the weather breaks a little bit. If you want to put down some fertilizer, put down some compost on top of it, moisten periodically. Uh, those will all be good things, but uh, things just, it is so hot, that compensation point is so high, things are just not going to grow well until we get a little bit uh, cooler and a little bit uh, less intense uh, heat and light. This has been really uh, so different from anything I guess we've experienced before. I and and you know, I've seen a lot of, a lot of summers and gardened a lot of summers and Quite honestly, I don't 
remember a year when the heat was in, as intense as it has been. I don't know about records. I know we've hit record high temperatures on a few days, but uh, I just, you know, personal observation, there's there's something about uh, that sunlight that just is more searing. The radiant heating effect, uh, to me, seems greater this summer. I'm I'm ready for rain. I'm ready for it to cool off a little bit. Do you see that with the uh, information you have that we don't necessarily get on the radio in terms of what is expected uh, weather-wise? Oh, that's a joke. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't even know. Uh, and we talk about this all the time around here. Is uh, we just want to believe that the weather's going to change sometime soon. And I think the the weather forecasters on the internet and other places they kind of pander to what they think we want to what we want to hear it seems like a week out they're giving us good rain chances but by the time we actually get up to that date they just seem to go away so i i don't think uh i don't think the average weathermen really have a very good forecasting systems and the really good meteorologist like uh, the fellow i mentioned he's smart enough to say that until and he can tell us why things are happening. He can't just tell us when when they're going to change. But uh, uh, just to sum it up, if if the weather changes in the Western Pacific and the and the waters cool down, things will improve. Whether that's going to happen or not, I have no idea. Well, that it, it, we'll just hang in. <laughs> I guess <is> <laughs> we don't have much choice. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, I still wouldn't live anywhere else. I mean, given the choice, I probably would rather be in Colorado or Wyoming right now, but I'm always going to be coming back home to Texas. This is just uh, this is just a challenging year, but it seems like we say that pretty often. I grew up in eastern Colorado, and I know what it can be like to have a drought there for years. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. So uh, it, no place perfect. Yeah, people here in Colorado and Wyoming, and they see in their mind, they see forests and pine trees and beautiful mountains in Colorado and Wyoming both. That may that may summarize western Colorado, but no, eastern half is a little bit more, more akin to New Mexico. And uh, as you say, you know what droughts are all about. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I'd just like to ask you if you have an idea on raccoons that got into a building uh, and had babies. We mm-hmm. we have that situation, and what I guess the tendency is to because it is a building that it doesn't you know it doesn't have to be used. Otherwise, do we just let them get their babies up where they're out? Yeah, let them baby get get their babies weaned and trap them and relocate them. Hopefully, relocate them to a, a place that has water. You don't want to take them and and dump them out in a place where they can't forage and survive. But uh, um, and it's uh, there's there's no <laughs> there's no uh, getting them to cooperate. Raccoons are. Animals that are can be very destructive in the landscape, to buildings. To uh, they did a huge amount of damage to uh, uh, our buildings when they managed to chew their way into an attic area and tore out tons of insulation and things. I I don't like raccoons, but I would never make an animal suffer. If I'm I trap it, I'm either going to relocate it or, in some cases, um, t- 
take a little more permanent action. But, uh, no, just be sure those babies are weaned and be sure you have a good place to take them. Okay. Uh, will the mother bring them outside? Mm, they, you will see them outside, and uh, you will see them feeding on your bird seed and other things. When the little ones are eating along with the adults, then probably time that they can move out, <laughs> move out of the house, so to speak. Well, we'll be ready for sure. <laughs> I don't understand that. If you've got another just a quick couple minutes with the Medina products, um, I have them, and they're just times when I'm not sure what to use. Could you run that by real uh, succinctly for me? Well, 365 days a year, you can use their soil activator products, like the one they call soil activator, like the one they call Medina Plus. Um, the microbial stimulants uh, or or things that will improve the soil, the both the liquid and dry humates you can use at any point. Um, I, again, I, I believe in putting out fertilizer at this time of the year. Uh, and once it cools off a little bit, I'll certainly be recommending putting out the granular fertilizer and following it up with some good uh, compost or mulch on top. Um, with their liquid products, uh, everything still needs nutrition. Uh, I find that in the heat, it's best to water first, but we alternate the Medina liquid fish and the Medina has to grow law, or I'm sorry, has to grow plant products and, uh, everything really does appreciate that. But, uh, and, you know, on your lawn, uh, you know, it is important to feed, uh, it, and you don't have to water it in, but it doesn't really go to work until you get some moisture on it. So, uh, you decide what, you know, what's best for you. But, uh, those are, those are different things of the Medina products that I think you can, you know, you can use at any point. Uh, their microbial uh, package, uh, which they have, I probably would wait until we're a little bit more, uh, a little bit wetter before we start putting out their dry microbe products. But uh, the fertilizers and, like you say, the soil enhancements like the uh, dry humates and things like that, you can use those any time. And... Uh, in anticipation of vegetable gardening, which, you know, we will get into much more vegetable gardening as the weather cools a bit, but nothing at all wrong with getting the soil ready, which means put down some fertilizer, put some compost on top of it, moisten it when you can, and that will really get the soil in good shape, ready for your next crops whenever the weather's right to plant them. Well, look, I sure appreciate going over all those concerns, and uh, yeah. thank you. It's always Thank a pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And uh, Don, let's get our last break of the hour out of the way, and we'll be back with more gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, probably have time for two callers, and that will be Mike and Eliza. Uh, Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, when I planted uh, my sycamore, Mexican sycamore tree, I have it on a little bit of a slope. Uh-huh. And uh, I dug a halfway decent uh, deep trough on the north side of it. Uh-huh. And uh, it's been like that now for several months, at least two, if not three. And uh, I decided, you know what, uh, let me 
do a similar type trough on the south side of it. So uh, the uh-huh. roots will uh, supposedly, you know, head in that direction also <laughs> as I water. Sure. Um, is that a good tactic? Well, I think it's a great tactic into, you know, as a way to have your water enter the soil slowly so that you can really saturate. And uh, you are so right in observing that, to a degree at least, the roots on one side of the tree support the branches and leaves above that side of the tree. So uh, where possible, and, uh, you know, sometimes if you're close to a structure or something like that, you can't have the best of all worlds. But where you have good even root structure all the way around the tree, you're going to get the most symmetrical and the strongest tree possible. So um, I, it, I don't think there would have been anything wrong with doing the whole thing at one time, but now that you've got one side done and, and got that soil in condition to absorb water a little bit better, I think it's a very good idea to move around and kind of do the same thing on the, on the rest of the tree. Fantastic. Um, also, um, you know, I'm using all the Medina products and, and so forth and so on. And, uh, but with this heat, um, I'm guessing that, you know, you're always talking about, uh, the oxygen, lack of oxygen is what kills the tree and so forth and so on. And, uh, Right, but with this heat, with this heat um, and the evaporation rate, with the breezes also, um, I'm guessing watering uh, every other day is not, you know, overdoing it. I don't think it would be overdoing on an uh, on a sycamore. I would might be a little bit more careful on some types of oaks, uh, maybe some types of things like escarpment cherry, but. Sycamores are adapted to handle a little bit wetter soil, a little bit more moist conditions, and uh, I don't think every other day, especially where you are, and I hate to ask what kind of daytime temperatures y'all have been experiencing. I I suspect you've been pushing 110 degrees a lot of afternoons. So, um, oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's and and you know as as you were talking about, we look at what's called evapotranspiration. And that's a combination of evaporation and actual transpiration out of, of moisture out of the tree. Um, yeah, that evapotranspiration rate is very high. So um, I, I think you're doing as good as anyone could do, Mike. I'd just say just do more of the same. Okie doke. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate you. Always good to hear from you. You stay cool. And uh, we'll finish up this hour with Eliza. Good morning, Eliza. Hi, is that me? That's you, Elizabeth. Okay, oh, well, all right. It, Very good. It, is it sure, you as the right person. Yeah. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I planted some blackberries in the spring, and um, I'm wondering what to do with them now. I know you're supposed to cut off the old canes, but these plants are so small, and I got mm-hmm. so few blackberries, I can't tell which are the old canes and then don't worry about it don't worry about it you will know which are the old canes because they're not going to flower as much as the new canes will but this is not a mandatory thing and if anything 
you know, the people that are still doing chemical agriculture, they worry about, oh, disease hits the old canes and things like that. Uh-uh. It's just the old canes make it much harder to pick the berries because you've just got twice as many thorns out there to to grab at you while you're trying to pick the berries. But you're you're not going your plants are not going to suffer just because you didn't cut the old canes out. It's just going to be a little bit harder to pick in the spring. So, uh, main thing you need to do is water and fertilize. Blackberries are thirsty plants, and you do want to get a good as much growth as possible out of those new canes, primocanes as we call them, because the new growth that's coming up now is what's going to give you berries next spring. So uh, water and feed and uh, pray for rain. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> well, I think maybe what I will do is, is go ahead and set up a trellis for them so that when they're tall enough, um, I can create some kind of order with it does everybody trellis their blackberries the smart people do Uh (laughs) i'll put it that way (laughs) i don't use a trellis per se i just uh i'm a big fan of welded wire fencing hog wire people call it by different names and you know it comes uh the one that i use most is four by four openings and I basically just stand up, uh, I don't always leave it in the 20 foot long panel, I might cut it down to 8 foot panels, but, uh, I just support it with, uh, T-posts and, um, that works. It's, it's open enough that I can get the old canes out from it, but it gives the plants very good support. So, it doesn't have to be fancy, but I, I, I do like, um, like I say, the, the 4x4, uh, wire rather than uh, something that's smaller than that and i'm not a big right. fan of wooden trellises because the blackberry plant can get quite heavy okay okay um let's see i've got um a stock tank i don't know how many gallons it is it's a round one it's seven or eight feet in diameter uh-huh and for for algae can i take like a cup of whole ground cornmeal and Oh, absolutely. Put it in a bag with the rock and throw it in there. Absolutely, and if you want to put a little hydrogen peroxide in uh, as well. But, uh, no, go right ahead. And, um, gosh, we're just out of time, and we're going to talk to Howard Garrett. If you want to call back after the Howard Garrett interview and talk more. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. But as you know, if you've listened for very long, don't dial right this minute. We'll save the last uh, few minutes of the show for a few more calls, and then we'll do it again tomorrow morning from 8 till 11. But it's Dirt Doctor time. Time to say good morning to Mr. Howard Garrett. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How's everybody? Hot. <laughs> Hot what? and tired. Uh, this heat just, I don't know, just kind of sucks the enthusiasm out of I still love to garden, but I have to admit, if I spend much time outside, I'm looking for that ceiling fan before too long. It's It's been a, a really intense and a very challenging summer. Yeah, it really has. I've been spending all my time out uh, watering, not doing other things. And if you're out very long, you can end up feeling kind of weak. It's um, It's... As we have talked, it seems different than I ever remember. Maybe it's just because I'm too I'm getting too old. Well, and that's what that's what we get accused of. But uh, I 
to me, there's just, and of course, the sun's heat is radiant heat. It, it heats the surface, which unfortunately is our our skin. But I swear the while the temperature may not be extreme, extreme. I mean, it's plenty hot. But boy, if you're out in the sun, and and that's where I notice the difference. If I'm if I'm in the shade and I've got a ceiling fan going, I can still function reasonably well. But man, you get out in that sun and. Uh, It'll take it out of you, and uh, as you discovered earlier this summer, you got to be real careful, or you can actually suffer some pretty severe health issues if you're not not watching things carefully, getting the electrolytes, getting the moisture, and just getting out of the sun sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. Just be careful with it. It's uh, supposed to be 110 here tomorrow. It's wow. Uh, I'm seeing uh, one thing that that um, is a clue about it being different than ever before. I'm seeing native plants in real stress. I've got some mm-hmm. uh, cherry laurels that are around my property that have just popped up here, and I leave some of them, most of them I take out, and some of them I, I let go, but the neighbor has some, and they are not only, you know, the, the first step is that dull color, yep. and I, I'm seeing that on trees all over the place, and that relates to a fire deal I was going to tell you about, but uh, the next thing is you get wilt, and then the next thing is you get actual burn on the foliage. Mm-hmm. And those cherry laurels are to that point. Yep. And uh, it's in an irrigated area. Now it's irrigated with rotary uh, sprinkler heads. It's probably not getting near enough water, and I've tried to throw a little over the fence to them. But it's you know native plant like that getting burned. That means it's pretty serious hot temperature outside. I, it's and and it's a variety of things. I'm seeing it more. I have to say, the big oaks and things like that. Not seeing a whole lot. The pecans, uh, and surprisingly, I've got a lot of pecans on my trees. I, I doubt that the nuts will fill out well. But uh, as I was going out my driveway, I suddenly noticed that the limbs were hanging down six inches further than they had been, and I got to looking carefully, and that's there. Pretty big clusters of pecans on them, which was a little surprising. But I'll tell you what, I'm for native plants that I'm seeing a lot of uh, issues on. It's uh, some of the little perennials like the Damianita, the Chrysactenia, the uh, black blackfoot daisy, the uh, even Agarita, seeing a little bit on that. But the pink mimosa, a lot of things that normally just sit there and don't necessarily like it, but they're they're really suffering. Uh, they look worse than I remember. The uh, skullcap. Uh, and uh, in, in my landscape, some of the things that I don't normally have to water, like salvia gregii, pink skullcap, and uh, mutabilis roses, things like that, they're they're not at all happy if they don't get uh, fairly good supplemental moisture. So it's uh, and and the burn again. I think that gets back to leaf temperature, gets back to radiant heat, and uh, yeah, we're seeing sunburn on both tropicals and natives that uh, I don't think I've ever seen it on before. Well, I've got some habanero peppers at the uh, office, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're getting burned on the leaves, and they don't get full sun all day long. They they get some full sun in the morning, and then they get a little bit uh, peaks during the afternoon. But they they're not in full sun all day long. But they have yep. uh, they've burned. Now they're starting to set a whole lot more fruit right now. I think they they know that <laughs> a little better weather is is <laughs> on the way, but. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's different this year. There's no question. Uh, there's no question about it. 
And it's, it's you know, and, and I think I told you we saw, I don't remember if it was the T-shirt or the sign that said, uh, Nature Never Disappoints. It's just fascinating to me to watch, you know, some of the things that are happening out there. We're probably seeing more lizards. Uh have hardly seen a snake, and I guess it's probably because I'm not out hiking as much in the early morning and the evening, but uh, we're seeing just as many, if not more, in the anoles and the skinks and uh, um, to some extent uh, things like the scalopris and the nematophorus of fence lizards and some of those, but seeing lots of those. Insect-wise, um, bumblebees. And it's, uh, I know not only our own gardens, but I'm seeing more bumblebees than I think I have ever seen, and that's that's a good thing. Um, I'm seeing more of those solid red wasps. You know, I love yellow jackets. I love the red and black wasps, but those solid red wasps, they're so aggressive and hurt so much when they sting you. I don't think I've ever seen as many of them as we're seeing right now, and they're finding ways to get into the house. I And, and of course, I live in an old, old house, but... I'm finding more of them have managed to get inside for whatever reason. And that was going to be one of my questions for you today was, uh, what do you use, if you use anything, what do you use in the way of a wasp spray if there are nests you need to eliminate? Just soapy water. Soapy water will knock them down uh-huh. as well as anything. And then if they're still alive, stomp on them. And that's really as strong as you need to use some insecticidal soap or just use some lemon joy with water or something like that. Okay. Okay. What Malcolm used to do, and I don't really recommend it, he did it, did it with a, a paper wasp more than anything, but he would spray them with water. Mm-hmm. He said he just used water and they would fall to the ground. He'd move the nest to a new location, <laughs> tack it up and get them to go to the new location. I've tried that a couple of times. I always get too I get too uh, nervous about it. I'm too much of a weenie to be calm about it. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm in your camp on that one. And uh, uh, the times that I have tried it has been very early in the morning, and and they feel the heat. I just watching their behavior, uh, they are just almost hyperactive on these super hot afternoons, and. Uh, um, it's uh, again the only ones that I really object to are the solid red ones, and they they are much more aggressive. But I, I definitely see a difference in their behavior on you know as the temperatures rise. Yeah, and the other one you got to be careful about is the uh, the true yellow jacket, the Texas yeah. yellow jacket. Oh, yeah. I'm seeing a few of those around here and there. In fact, I was uh, noticing a red wasp that <clears throat> on a property the other day. A red wasp was dead on the ground, and right beside it was one of the uh, Texas yellow jackets. So if you happen to run across uh, one of them, uh, one of the the holes where they're coming out mm-hmm. of ground, you really need to be careful because they yep. don't go around. They are really dangerous. Yeah, they're not the paper wasps and uh, the the yellow jackets that we like are, but those things and uh, I think that's what some of the old timers around here would call hornets or even green hornets. But right. I tell you what, I. I I hit a pretty big colony of them one time when I was out shredding a field, and let's just say I found out how fast a John Deere tractor can go, because <laughs> it, it was a cloud of them that uh, I looked around and they were just swarming up out of the ground and uh, uh, 
my tractor outran them, I'm happy to say, but I've seen, and, and they make an interesting, uh, nest. I don't really know what you would call it. We don't see it, uh, when it's underground, but, uh, they're getting a wood pile or something like that, and they make almost a paper mache kind of structure. And remember one time, uh, this is years ago, one of my puppy dogs managed to stick her head into one of these things and came out with like, must have been 12 or 15 wasps, you know, just stinging away on her face and shoulders. And uh, fortunately, no bad long-term consequences, but uh, they're aggressive little such-and-sos and, and uh, uh, no friends of mine. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the nest that they build underground looks a lot like, well, exactly like if you dug it up and pulled it out of the ground, what they build above ground. In the, our book, the uh, Texas Bug Book, mm-hmm. uh, there's a picture in there of, of one of the nests that's on a porch. They built it around the mailbox right on the front porch. It's a real pretty uh, hive, paper mache type uh-huh. hive, but that, that's that's the same thing they build down in the ground huh. when they do the usual thing. <laughs> Why they sometimes build above ground like that, I, I don't have any idea. I don't know what the difference is. I don't either. And I, that's, that's, I'll that's get out my bug book, which is sitting right here on the shelf next to me, and because uh, that's one of my one of my primary reference uh, books. Is And you, Malcolm, did such a good job on that. But uh, generally, when I find them in the ground, I'm just interested in going the other direction as yeah. quickly as possible because they, uh, yeah, they're, they, they're quite painful, and, and up north they call them yellow jackets, and that's when you see all these so-called yellow jacket traps, and uh, they, they get advertised fairly widely, and uh, people need to realize that that's not what they're targeting, or our paper wasps we call yellow jackets. It's uh, little hornets that I can see why people don't want those in the garden. I, uh, a couple of other things I wanted to share with you uh I was telling you last week about these quasar sprayers out of Poland. Um, mm-hmm. The fellow I talked to sent us some samples, uh, a couple of samples of them, and uh, I just really like this sprayer. It's just a really, Roberta's <laughs> walking in and looking at the one sitting on my desk, but uh, uh, as soon as we get some, I'm going to send a couple up your way too because they're they're just the best, and they make a pump-up uh, like tank sprayer you can carry around, but... I love this little one. It's a one-liter sprayer that's uh, just got a handle and a little pump on top for uh, uh, pressurizing it and then a very adjustable nozzle. And uh, Anyway, it's, it's the best sprayer that I've seen in some time, and uh, I look forward to sharing one with you, and I, I think we're probably going to have them on our shelves pretty shortly. But uh, You know, I think one of the things that you talk about as much or more than I do that's really beneficial during this, this hot period of spraying the t- the foliage and the stems and the trunks of plants. I'm right. I'm seeing um, some burn on some of my uh, Japanese maples, mm-hmm. and I started doing that on a regular basis a couple times a day on some of them, and, and it really does seem to have stopped that problem of the burning of the tip growth. It's cosmetic uh, burn mm-hmm. pretty much, but I think you can even stop that with some spraying of the foliage. I had some viburnum that were wilting pretty badly, and I started mm-hmm. doing that on them in addition to you know trying to water properly on the soil too. But I think it makes a difference. I think the water goes into the plant pretty efficiently that way. Oh, I I agree, and my old friend and mentor, Alton Grimm, 
was the one that uh, when I worked for him for a couple of years, he just and especially when we got in back then, we sold bare root fruit trees, and of course, they weren't really bare root. We had them in containers or perlite or sawdust or things, but uh, uh, you know, he'd have me doing that ten times a day, and our fruit trees look better than anyone else's. And I've had callers tell me that uh, plants that were really in trouble that they actually felt like it saved the life of the plant. So, uh, yeah, and I don't, I, I, I tell people you don't want a lot of water on the foliage because water can act like a prism which, um, you know, will actually burn underneath it. But um, just a very fine mist. Uh, and I love that little, uh, oh, they call them a fog, F-O-G-G, that little nozzle that puts out about, I think it's a gallon per minute or something like that. But it's just like a cloud coming out of the end of the hose. And uh, I've been known to hold that above my head <laughs> when I was out working in the sun, and it really does feel good. So I imagine how the plants feel. Well, I was a little concerned about that because I'm just doing it with a water hose with my thumb mm-hmm. over the hose, you know, and spraying stuff down. And I think the difference is if you did that during cool weather or more normal weather, the moisture is going to stay there quite a while, and you might yep. run the risk of the burn or encouraging some kind of a pathogen to get going. But it's so it's so hot, it dries out so fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't think that's a problem. I think it goes into the plant pretty quickly and dries out. You know, it real uh, fast at the same rate. In fact, I was doing it the other day. I was spraying some of the plants, and I was looking back at, did I spray that one or not? It doesn't look wet at all, and it dawned mm-hmm. on me how quickly things were drying out. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One other thing that you probably are well aware of this, and I guess I just had never paid that much attention, was uh, somebody was showing me the differences in neem. And, uh, you know, there you can find neem under several different brand names in a nursery, but I did not realize that what a lot of uh, companies package, I think they call it hydrophilic neem or something like that, and there is a different neem oil that is a cold-pressed neem that is has a much longer shelf life, a much longer life, even after it's been mixed. And I never really had uh, had realized that there were that there were two, and both of them are just sold as neem oil, and both of them are advertised for the same sort of uh, insect and to some degree disease control. But people that I talked to at uh, a trade show. Actually, last Wednesday, Adams uh, had their big trade show, and I spent some time with them. But uh, uh, I didn't realize that there was as much difference in, in what people are buying as neem. If at all possible, you want to look for a cold-pressed neem because it's going to have a lot longer shelf life and apparently a lot better efficacy. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank on the one that I've had the best luck with. I'll think of it in a minute. It's a short name, but it's a dry product, too, and I huh. think the dry the dry products have a much better uh, shelf life. Yep. Um, what's the scientific name of neem? I'm drawing a, I'm an old. Oh, I it's it's. Uh, <laughs> I anyway, I don't it, know. Yeah. It's a short name that that um, uses the first part of the uh, botanical name of uh, neem, and it's dry and it it costs more, but it definitely has a much better shelf life and better efficacy. Yeah, well, and the one that isn't so good is uh, um, 
uh, the Fertilome brand, uh, Fertilome, and then they have their other line. And I, and and of course, I, I don't like the company in general because they produce so many toxic products. I do respect the fact that they don't sell to the big box stores and chain stores, uh, but uh, they. And and as it was explained to me, uh, the the kind the the not so good kind is actually a byproduct of making the good cold press neem, and it's just sort of a cheaper derivative that has some disadvantages. So I've got to do a little more research on that. But every now and then, I just kind of you know slap my forehead and said, "Duh, I should have known that." But uh, it was it was news to me that there is that much difference. And just because it says neem oil on the bottom doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a a real good product. And uh, uh, they were telling me that it's they've found nothing as effective on spider mites in particular as neem is. We've we've tried a number of different things, but uh, they were saying that they're getting total control with one spraying on spider mites with the cold pressed neem. Hmm, interesting. Well, yeah. of course, you know the seaweed works well too, Doctor. Uh, at Cornell, you know, uh, TLCN uh, discovered it probably 50 years ago that it worked oh, yeah. so well on uh, spider mites. Azamectin is the uh, scientific name. And it's oh, okay. The yeah. brand name is Azagro or Azamo or Aza something. Anyway, it's, oh, a, okay. it's, a, it's a dry product. It is available uh, out there. It might be one you all sh- should look at uh, carrying in the store there. It costs more, but really works. And one of the biggest problems with neem is the shelf life, like you uh, suggested. It, I don't think that it has as good a shelf life as it has worse shelf life than any of the uh, organic pest control products that we recommend. And that was my understanding. And uh, they're telling me the difference, though, is instead of six months, which is what we've always said, uh, that you're looking at maybe a, potentially a five-year shelf life if you've kept it from getting just really, really hot, and uh, that that is a big difference. And back to the seaweed, I I love the seaweed, and I've used it as a preventive forever on mites, and you know, and to increase winter hardiness as well. But yeah. uh, you know, if they get out of hand, and you feel like you have to spray, that uh, that they were saying this for them has given better control than the seaweed. I I use the seaweed as just that's part of my just ongoing. Regimen. I wish I could say I would like to do it every two weeks, and I don't get around to doing it that often. But uh, it's it, it's one of those things that that along with garret juice just can make. Uh, and and it's part of garret juice as, as we make it. But uh, it sure does sure does do good things in the garden. Yeah, the uh, the use of garret juice gives you that uh, benefit and a bunch of other things too. One one little thing I wanted to bring up, not a little thing, but apparently the squirrels are starting to ramp up being a, a new, bigger problem. I had one of my uh, friends that I recommended an arborist to, and he did, you know, the base work, exposed the flares, and did some good pruning for them and the whole thing, and he was bragging about how great everything was looking. And then this past week, squirrels hit his trees big time. Even oh, wow. trees that were, you know, had flares exposed properly and, now, he probably hadn't gone into a total organic program. He's probably still mm-hmm. using synthetic fertilizers and stuff, and that may be the, the answer. It's going to be worth looking at. But he's, his trees were just brutalized by squirrels, so everybody might 
uh, keep a lookout for that and give us some reports about anything you're seeing because I'm real curious if that will happen in an organic program as much mm -hmm. as when people are still, you know, loading plants up with the high nitrogen stuff. Sure. And you're talking about stripping the bark is uh, and chewing yeah, on it. Yeah, all the way around, up, up in the top of the tree, stripping limbs all the way around. Yeah, really wow. causing dead, big dead areas in the uh, canopy of the trees. Well, that's... I've, I've seen that in the past, but I've never seen it on trees that, you know, had uh, been exposed properly and, and had the uh, sick tree treatment applied. Uh, and again, this one may be unusual because I doubt very seriously if he's doing everything else organic besides yep. the, the work that I recommended to him. So, well, that's interesting. I'll anyway, keep, an, keep eye an eye on that. Yeah, yeah. And I will recommend, <laughs> I had heard about, but uh, one of my neighbors, <laughs> and we, and I've forgotten what I'd given him, some fertilizer or something, but one of my friends gave me a squirrelinator. And have you oh, seen uh, those yet? No, you've been telling me about it, but I haven't seen one yet. And it is true that you can catch five or six squirrels at one time with it, and uh it's just, it's really easy to get them out of the trap, too. It's just a very simple, um, oh, kind of a light light metal, heavy wire kind of thing. But uh, uh, it's it's fun when something works as advertised, so to speak. And, and you just basically put a, a, a bait pile in the center, and birdseed makes a good thing. I was out of birdseed at one point, and I just put a handful of ground cornmeal down and, uh, you know, set the trap on top of that and lo and behold came home and here's a pair of the black mountain rock squirrels which uh, uh, don't seem to do as much damage above ground but they're such tunnelers and uh, uh, they can sure damage vegetable plants and things like that but uh, anybody who has real squirrel problems I, I've become a fan of the squirrelinator <laughs> okay. well, I gotta and, check that out I finally thought of the name of that product and I uh, I don't know why I couldn't think of it. It's Azasol, A-Z-A-S-O-L. A-Z-A-S-O-L. All right, I'll sketch through Azamectin and put down Azasol. Okay, I'll be looking for that, and uh, and I'll I'll also go back and get the name of this other one that they were promoting, and we'll we'll compare notes and availability on that. So that's great. That's great. Well, they're telling us that we have the potential. I think they're saying sixty percent. Uh, chance of rain on Tuesday and a high of 92 or something. Of course, that's not, you know, it's more concentrated. They originally, our forecast was saying Tuesday and Wednesday and an extended period of cooler weather. And when I looked this morning at 4 in the morning, it was uh, down to one day only. But I, I any any moisture will be a big help. We're... Uh, uh, just in the, it, the the signs on the highway tell you it's extreme wildfire danger. So I'm really encouraging people to mow and keep their gutters clean and do all the firewise things you can because uh, we're we're sitting on a tinderbox down there, and I suspect a lot of your part of Texas is as well. Well, I just spent some time yesterday, quite a bit of time, trying to contact people at the city of Dallas to get out to White Rock Lake and mow. Yep. It, uh, I went by there, and they had the, the native grasses on the north end of the lake were three feet high all over mm -hmm. the place. Of course, they were totally brown and yellow, and I just thought, man, and with you know this Maui horrible 
thing on my mind. Yeah. I just said, you know, if somebody throws a cigarette out in there, it's going to go up like a Roman candle. So I, it, I, I spent a bunch of time and got some good response from a lady uh, I talked to, you know, calling 311. So it's going to be, and they said they would keep me notified about it. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly they get out there and get that mowed and taken care of. But anybody, I heard you mention it on uh, your ranch, too. Anybody that's got any high dead grass right now, you ought to get it knocked down as quick as you can. And what I learned when I did the Citizens Fire Academy down here is that a fire, the flames will tend to be three times as high as a substrate, three times as high as what's burning. And, mm-hmm. you know, you calculate that. If the grass is two inches tall, the flames are probably going to be six inches high, which is manageable from a firefighter's perspective. And I'll tell you about a neat little, another neat little thing, but um, where they let that grass get up two and three feet tall, you're looking at the potential to have flames almost 10 feet tall. And uh, that really gets people's attention. Not, you know, everybody can understand that tall grass is more of a problem than short. But when you actually put it in terms of uh, how big a wall of flame you could have, um, pass that along to your people. And I know your fire department will back you up on that. And uh, uh, it can be life-saving and certainly property-saving. And as an interesting thing, uh, again, this uh, same neighbor, that I think, when, when he finds something that uh, he really, really likes and shares, but he also gave me for as a Christmas present a couple of years ago something called a fire paddle. And uh, it, it basically it has a handle. It can be either wooden or fiberglass. I really like wooden handle much better these days. But it looks kind of like a mud flap that would come off of a, a truck or something like that. But it's a little bit thicker, thicker, a little bit heavier duty. And you literally smother the flames by dragging it over the flames. You don't want to try to beat because then you're creating you know, air moving, which is going to make things burn more. But these apparently are used in fire departments all over the place, and they call it a fire paddle. And um, uh, anyway, it's it's very interesting. I I used one. I knock on wood, have never had a fire get out of hand, but I just wanted to see how it would work back in time of higher moisture when I was uh, uh, burning a, a brush pile on the ranch. I intentionally left the grass a little higher on one side, and as the flames started to spread out in there, I tried out my fire paddle and uh, really really did work in suppressing it. I, I certainly don't recommend people without training and equipment attempting to fight a fire, um, but there's some real useful tools to have on hand if you do. Yeah, I thought you just left piles there and built your exclosures and things like that with brush. Oh, I, I, I do that up on top of my hillsides, but this was out in a couple of pastures where I had... Uh, a lot of tree limbs and things that came down, and just um, uh, it just the just the sheer volume and the fact that I wasn't interested in attracting skunks and raccoons and things like that yeah. to leave in them. I I rarely burn, and I haven't I haven't burned in several months, obviously with the drought and everything. But uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's amazing how much. Uh, non-chippable material you can build up and sometimes the limbs are just at an odd angle it's just not not as safe to feed them into into a chipper so yeah i convert everything to mulch that i can but i get some material that uh, just doesn't work but anyway interesting things and everybody everybody really should have uh uh be fire aware at this point 
Yeah, that uh, Maui thing was terrible, and then the details that we're hearing about it, about not being able to use the water and hydrants not working and things like that are really, uh, I think we're going to continue to hear more and more about well, that, that yeah. situation. Ab- absolutely, and it's amazing things that I learned. I so enjoyed and I so appreciate and respect our Bernie Fire Department for the Citizens Academy that I was privileged to be a part of and learned so much about it. But um, uh, the, the Maui Fire was, I don't know, was just incredible. And I had a friend uh, sent, me, uh, sent me a text the other day reminding us all that, uh, um, suggesting that we make a contribution to the Maui Humane Society because there are so many pets that that you know worse lost their homes and worse still some of them lost their owners and they said there's a real real need uh with the humane society on maui to uh help rescue and rehabilitate animals uh whose families suffer from the fire so i pass that along just as a just as a good suggestion yeah there was a lot of bad stuff about it and still still coming out well tater is uh telling me there's time for me to cook <laughs> his, uh, my meal and his licky plate. So and I hadn't even looked at the clock. Yeah, we'll <laughs> save a little bit for next week. Yeah, we'll talk next week. Enjoy it, Bob. See you you do the same, Howard. And right. everybody, dirtdoctor.com, best website on the Internet for things that really do work and really are applicable down here in South Texas, just as they are up in the Metroplex. Uh, we sure do have to thank Howard for sharing a little bit of his Saturday with us. And uh, uh, now I know we need to run a commercial or two, and we'll have a little bit of time left for a few more phone calls if you want to dial 210-599-5555. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Last few minutes of today, but uh, um, we will be doing this again tomorrow morning. We'll talk to John and Glenn and Mike, and John is first in line. Good morning. Well, Bob, I'm looking down this Guadalupe River Valley towards the coast, and I can see some activity on the horizon, and we just need to pray for beneficial rain. Everybody remember? (laughs) Beneficial. That's the key word. Yep. I, I'd take a flood, though, at this point. Not a major flood, but uh, we we need more than just a sprinkle, like you say. We need a, a good, soaking, beneficial rain. Uh, hopefully, and, you know, we, we will get back to that, but I'm, the eternal optimist in me wants to believe that it might even happen next week. Well, I'll be quick. I just We talked last week about the... Uh, 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 maintenance companies for the power lines using uh, right. uh, the the drones for spraying and didn't know the chemical. I called the guy finally, and um, I, he told me the name of it. I didn't understand it, and I brought up the thing about um, defoliating, and he says, well, it's not a defoliant, and it has something to do with growth hormones. So, well, and yeah, and uh, that's, that's are what I... Are the twilight zone yet on that or not? It's well. It's it's something that has actually been done, and and it is a growth retardant. And I, it's not something that I recommend, but it's something that quite a few arborist companies around have used for some time. And it it doesn't really harm the plant. It is a growth retardant, and it simply means that the limbs will not regrow 
uh, as quickly, and it certainly it, it apparently doesn't kill the limbs that are the problem. If there are limbs that are a problem, and, and quite obviously limbs and power lines don't uh, mix, but once the limbs have been removed, apparently it's what can be used to slow down the regrowth and, short, and increase the time before they'll have to be pruned again is uh, what I discovered in trying to research it. It relieves me that it isn't a herbicide, that it is instead a growth retardant. And uh, again, I don't want it sprayed around my house. And if it's like some of the other growth retardants, it is carcinogenic. So it's something that I don't think should be used real highly. But it is a product that's out there. And there are a number of uh, rec- you know reputable arborists that uh, feel like it has a uh, you know, a place in their toolbox. It's just something I tend not to use. Well, it is optional, and, and uh, he said the majority of people are are going with it. So mm-hmm. uh, I just want well, to I, update you on that. And- I very much appreciate the update, John, and I appreciate being alerted to it and uh, uh, always, always glad to hear things like that, and sometimes they turn out to be a little better, and sometimes they turn out to be a little worse, but uh, need a lot of watchdogs in this world. There's so many crazy things happening out there. Good and bad and everything. <laughs> you got it. Well, listen, thanks again, and uh, you get out and have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Bye. Uh, I tell you what, Don, let's go ahead and get our last break out of the way so we know exactly how much time we have, and I'm pretty sure we'll be able to get in both uh, Glenn and Mike. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, down to the last 10 minutes of the show. Remind you that the Home Improvement Show will come along right afterwards. We're going to keep you entertained here on KTSA all morning. So uh, let's finish up the garden show with Glenn and Mike. Glenn is up first. Good morning, Glenn. Bob, good morning. Good morning, sir. uh, I know you're a little short on time, so I'll try to try to be quick. I've got two questions. The first one, uh, we've got a red oak tree that my father-in-law uh, planted, I don't know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's 40 to 50 feet tall. The trunk is, you know, 14 inches, something like that, sort of uh, diameter. And, you know, the leaves are starting to die on it. It's, it's stressed, and I've been... I've been uh, when I can't when I can get away with it. I've been <laughs> spraying the trunk and and uh, I've been putting the hose up and trying to let it run three, four, or five hours, uh, about four or six feet from the trunk because I mm-hmm. remember you saying that trees, uh, you know, we we we're finding out they take up more water closer to the trunk. Right. Uh, right. Should I get in? Should I get even closer than that, or am I? No, no. I think I they they say within ten feet is uh, what the arborists okay. are telling me. Is this a tree that's always been in a landscaped area, or is this uh, a tree that was uh, just a uh, pasture tree uh, when when um, it got built up around it? Well, it's it's in the yard, and uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, it's it's within about. I don't know, four or five feet of a sidewalk and then the okay. You okay. Know, fence that goes around the yard. And... Yeah, and the, the reason that I was asking is, you know, I, of course, have uh, lots of these on my property. My business partner has on hers as well. And most of the trees that are, 
you know, out that have been out there for a lot of years, uh, big red oaks and things like that, are really at this point, knock on wood, showing very little damage. But trees that are in landscapes uh, are doing exactly what you're describing. We're seeing some actual burning. We're seeing some leaf loss. We're seeing some dead clumps of leaves. And I think it's interesting, and I believe the reason is that uh, those trees that were in an area with regular irrigation, they simply have not developed the root system of a tree that's you know out in nature that has had to grow as wide a root system as possible. And I think I've, I've told you before, or I've, I've, I've talked about it before, that I've got pecan trees along a creek, and I've got pecan trees out in a field. Pecan trees along the creek are wimps, and when we get into a drought, they really suffer. The trees 200 feet away out in the field, uh, look at them, you wouldn't even know they, that we were in a drought. They're doing so well. So um, I, I, I think it's important that you do water this tree in the, in the manner you're describing. I wouldn't do it too often. I would do it very, very thoroughly, but um, you don't want to overdo it. Uh, even though you're seeing a little bit of damage, I'm going to tell you no more than every two or three weeks because the worst thing you can do is keep a tree or keep the soil too wet when a tree is starting to have a little bit of root damage to begin with because keep that soil saturated with water. It makes the situation worse rather than better. So I, at this point, I think it's good to identify the problem, understand what it is, but don't overreact. You know, maybe a little bit of super thrive, a little bit of garret juice periodically, but don't get carried away with your water or you'll you'll make it even worse. Well, that's, um, I'm glad you said that because that'll make, make life under the spousal water district a little easier <laughs> to, to get away. I understand. But, but, but spraying up and down the limbs, the trunk of the tree, do that as frequently as you can. That's, you're never going to overdo that uh, because, you know, as you've heard me say many times, I'm sure it's not the, not the water that does the damage, it's the lack of oxygen if the soil gets, you know, saturated with water. That's not going to happen above ground level, so feel free to spray down the trunk and limbs as often as you like, and the tree will definitely benefit from that. Okay. And just, just to clarify, the area that, it, that it's in, uh, there's no there's no grass there. I mean, I've mm-hmm. got it covered with, with rocks, so, it you know, it hadn't had the benefit of being watered like, and then, I mean, the other side where the grass is, I've only got sure. two little patches that I'm keeping alive and hoping, hoping yep. that, you know, at some point we'll get rain. But anyway, <laughs> my, my, uh, second question, I, I, uh, planted in those little seed trays that, that you put water in the bottom. I planted last mm-hmm. week some, um, kohlrabi seeds. Okay. And I had them in outside in the, in the shade. Uh, because you know, I know they're not uh, they're they're not a heat loving plant, but the, it's been a week and absolutely has come up. Um, can I should I move those inside and put them in a try to put them in a sunny window? You know where the where the temperature is typically in the seventies. I or, I probably would, but not for that reason uh, because. Uh, uh, and I hope this hasn't happened. Uh, I know a lot of people that have done that. Things came up. The squirrels ate them off before, you know, just ate them right down to ground level. So look carefully and be sure they didn't sprout when you didn't see. 
Um, I think uh, I you know I, I don't think these temperatures are too extreme, but a sunny window away from the rodents probably would be better. Uh, and yeah, I hope you didn't plant them too deep. Kohlrabi's a seed that should be have no more than a quarter of an inch of soil over the top of it when it's planted. Yeah, no, they're they're uh, I, I planted them pretty shallow, and they're, those trays have those little humidity domes on them that I had a rock on to keep the mm-hmm. little rock to keep the wind from blowing them off. So yeah. uh, I, my only other concern is, is maybe. Maybe the the seed mix is is too wet. Uh, I mean, I haven't, you know, I've, like I say, I've got them in those little trays that you just pour water in and they water yeah. from the bottom. Well, I I'm not a fan of those because again, a root that grows in water, you know, isn't the same structure. I would tend to just you know use your finger when you can lay your finger on the surface of the soil. It's time to water, and um, I I'd get some more seeds started, and uh, probably just in in regular pots or even just a, a regular tray, which most nurseries would uh, would give you. And uh, uh, let's talk again about it, my, uh, Glenn. I really want to get Mike in here before the show ends, so uh, we can talk in tomorrow if you like. Uh, good morning, Mike. Uh, got about three minutes here. All right. Good morning, Bob. I'll, I'll be quick. Um, Two questions. First one, is an almond verbena a plant that needs full sun? It will grow well in bright shade to full sun. I think it's a little hardier, and as you may have seen, it tends to have a very fragrant, wonderful flower, uh, and it will bloom better in full sun. It will grow in partial sun, but if you want to get the, the best plants you can and certainly get it to flower well, full sun is ideal. Okay, thanks. And the next question, I have a 10-inch strip of dirt on a north-facing wall of my house, so it, it gets almost no sun. Uh, and I should have asked you this before I did it, but I planted gardenias and blue plumbagos there. Um, I read that the plumbagos can bloom even in shade. Um, yeah. uh, what about the gardenias? Are those <laughs> never going to bloom? Or that's No, they'll, the gardenias should bloom. Uh, what the gardenias don't <laughs> like is San Antonio soil. Um, and literally, yeah. okay. I, don't, I don't know how long they've been in the ground, but in an area I was going to plant gardenias, I would try to mix in about 50% compost. And if you just dug a hole and put them, put them in San Antonio soil, dig them up and go back and really fortify that area with lots and lots of compost blended with the soil, and your gardenias will be much happier. Um, if it's bright okay. enough to, if it's bright enough to cast a shadow, that's enough light for your gardenias to bloom, and it should be fine okay. for plumbago. Uh, if you want other things, look at Turk's cap, look at American beautyberry. Uh, look at some of the salvias, like salvia coccinea and the so-called smoothleaf sage. Uh, those are all beautiful perennials that we'll do in the shade. But gardenias, uh, unless you do really do a lot of soil preparation, they're going to be tough to grow in South Texas. Okay, great. Thank you. Very good. Uh, you got about one minute. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, sure. Is it normal? To, I have a ton of uh, soldier flag larva grubs in my compost pile, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm new to composting. Is, is that normal? Oh, that's normal and ideal. That's a very beneficial. Okay. Soldier flies are okay. great in the compost pile, and the soldier flies themselves, as they die and decay, are great nutrients for the things that live in the soil. Okay, great. So, yeah, I, I mean, my only concern was if they were still in there when I eventually put it in the garden 
Then I'd have grubs in the garden. No, not going to hurt a thing. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Mike.